This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. My name's Brian Latendry. And I am Anthony Johnston, and today we are talking about Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche. Boy, are we. I am beyond excited. This is an <laughs> album that I probably have listened to, I'm going to say at least 10 to 12 times this week, getting ready for this episode. You, you say that every time. You're like, I'm so excited. It's great. You, <laughs> you know what's interesting? Well, anyways, what, I mean, I'll, I'll gush about this album as we go on. But yes, what I think what I am really loving about doing this show so far is that I the way I sort of approach it is whenever we pick the album for a week... I just sort of immerse myself in it. And for some of these albums, like I haven't listened to them in a couple of years or in the case of like Paradise Lost, I hadn't listened to it at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's really fun to just sort of dive into an album for several days and just sort of really let it sink in. And that's been really fun for me. And, and for some of these, like going back and talking about some of these classic albums that I grew up with is really just super fun. So I am loving it. Yeah, no, that is one of the more interesting parts of me as well. I mean, South of Heaven, I probably hadn't listened to in like, you know, six, seven years or something before we did that. Not that I dislike it, but yeah, I just sure. hadn't listened to it. Uh, this album, famously, as I said in the very first episode <laughs> to your stunned silence, I had never heard. Um, it turns out that I had, I was, I won't even say familiar, I had heard precisely one Queensryche song uh, before this and that was is it silent lucidity yes it's called Which the is, single uh, from the next album that makes perfect sense yep yeah. that makes perfect that's sense that you heard that album only no 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 not or the that album song rather <laughs> that song that's the only song of theirs i had ever heard uh it's because um an old friend of mine uh, a guy i was in a band with actually for a while his parents uh, but we, you know we're good like old close friends as well his parents uh, or his mother specifically was a Queensryche fan as i recall and, and so, isn't that interesting? Uh, well, and that says a lot about my prior perceptions about the band, actually, because I knew very, very little about them, but I always put them in the same box, if you like, as bands like Dream Theater, that kind okay. of prog soft rock that your friend's parents listen to, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and what? And, and I bet they would be very um, saddened, and I'm sure you are in with thousands and thousands maybe even millions of fans of theirs who or or people who became familiar with their music because of that one song because that album which was the album that followed uh, operation mind crime it's called empire was their most successful album uh, mind crime went platinum and empire went three times platinum and it oh, was right. the band that put it was the album that put them on the map and and uh, silent lucidity as you can tell from being the sort of soft prog became a complete crossover hit for them. So they that's where they were being played on mainstream radio. That was the song that made people who had never heard of Queensryche um, hear Queensryche for the first time. And, so, and there was acoustic versions of it, and there was all this kind of stuff. And so that's what many people who weren't familiar with them, they know that as Queensryche. When you say Queensryche, they think Silent Lucidity. Right, and I should add that I think Silent Lucidity is a really terrible song. I didn't like it at all. So that kind of you know didn't bode well sure but it, but it sort of it says that right like you could hear one song from a band that you that maybe doesn't get a lot of airplay near you or just isn't sort of in your sort of listening circle and if that's not a song that resonates with you you may never 
ever follow up on that band again. And oh, I think we're already yeah, seeing yeah. that with some of the people that listen to the show where they're like, you know what? I never gave this band a chance, but then I went back and listened to, you know, a couple of their albums and I was really surprised. And so it, it well, is. Uh, and conversely, uh, you know, there are bands that I have become huge fans of because I heard one song. Correct. I was so impressed by that song. I was like, okay, I need to find out more about this band. I find that that is me now more more times than not. Like back in the day, um, well, it's more common to just hear one song now. I think, isn't yes, it? Because of yes. you know, be- ever since the iTunes revolution, where it's all singles rather than albums, is all the focus now. Even for bands that previously would have been what we think of as album bands, I think that's a lot more common. Yeah. And I think because the listening audience is nowadays, you know, kids these days are programmed to, <laughs> to uh, you know, think of one song at a time and not think of the whole album. And we right. sort of, this is a theme that we'll t- we talk about a lot on this show, but imagine being the band and having to decide what is the song that you're going to release into the world because you get like one shot at it. And right. so if the song that you release is not perfectly indicative of your overall sound, and certainly for Queensryche, Silent Lucidity is nowhere near, especially what their first five albums, you know, sound mm-hmm. like. And so, if that's the one song that got released into the world today, people would not even know what Queensryche was all about. Right? Yeah, which um, is crazy. Right. Uh, I just hang on, but before we go any further, follow up from last week the uh, the traditional now traditional <laughs> follow up at the start I love of the it. show. Um, I we talked about uh, with Paradise Lost. We talked about the stability of their lineup, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't actually mention that their current drummer uh, is Adrian Erlinson, who uh, you know most metal fans will know as uh, an outstanding drummer, formerly of uh, At the Gates. Actually, mm-hmm. I think he might still be might still drum for At the Gates. Uh, certainly, formerly of Cradle of Filth. He was in Brugeria for many years uh and he's now as well as paradise lost drummer he's also the drummer of valenfire which is paradise lost guitarist greg mcintosh's side project uh his sort of crust punk uh dirty metal side project so mm, that sounds like uh, i might want to check that out oh it's a really good album we i may well bring that onto the show actually um okay but yeah i should have mentioned him because adrian has he's now been in the band since like 2009 he's been there a while now and he's become a very kind of important part of the band. I get the feeling that he might be the last drummer change for a long time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, especially when there, you know, there are bands who are very comfortable with lineup changes and make them somewhat frequently. And then there are bands who have kept a core for a very long time. Queensrÿche is one of the bands that, until the past few years, really hadn't had major shakeups in their right. lineup outside of one person you know, leaving the group. And so, um, so yeah, you, you tend to see with bands like that, they want to get that piece in there and then they don't want to let it go. Right. Because they don't want to worry about it. I think as much as anything, it's one less thing to be distracted by. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, I think I mentioned on the show that I've seen Paradise Lost live many times, but I didn't mention the very first gig I saw them at was touring that album, Icon, and it was at uh, Rock City in Nottingham here in the UK, which is a very famous uh, venue. Yeah, with Sepultura, just after Sepultura had released Chaos AD, which of wow. course was their big breakthrough album. That was. That's it, an album we'll probably talk about. It was possibly the best metal gig I have ever been to in my life. And it was huh. only the two bands, you know, and neither, if you've seen either of them, especially if you saw them around that time, neither of them are sort of 
that kind of polished technically you know sure. they're kind of it's not like they're super tight or certainly at that time uh like amazing sonic experiences but the the atmosphere in that gig was incredible it felt like it felt like a change was coming you know it's that kind of feeling like holy shit these are two like really really hot bands now making music that no, this kind of music that nobody has heard before and yeah and they're, and they're having success and with like- it yeah. And they were great live, yeah. And the energy was just, it was absolutely, absolutely amazing. I just wanted to mention that. If anybody listening was at those gigs, they'll know that whole tour, apparently, I only saw one gig on that tour, but that whole tour apparently was absolutely fantastic. But the Rock City gig especially was, that was really something special. I remember seeing Meshuggah live, and I wasn't that familiar with them at the time. Uh, it was actually, it's funny, it was, they were with P.O.D., which is a Christian sort of... Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, I, I don't even know how, you, how you'd classify them but certainly have dabbled in metal but but sort of a lot of different genres but uh i was a pod fan especially of their album satellite so we went to see them and mashuga was one of the bands on the bill it was up in maine i was on vacation and uh they happened to play at a civic center up there and i was blown away and it was one of those things where i was like wow okay these guys are doing something pretty amazing yeah and they kind special. of blew the crowd away too exactly yeah well and we talk actually we, we were just talking about how one song can you know sort of make you want to seek out a band more that gig basically made me a fan of i mean i was already a, a committed fan of paradise lost but that made me a real fan of their live shows like, i have seen them live more times than any other band and part of that is just because that first gig was so amazing that i was like yeah okay clearly they know how to do it live. <laughs> so I'm just going to go whenever I can. Yep. And, and we're going to talk about Queensryche yeah. live as we get through this uh, thing too, because I've seen them uh, two or three times live, oh, but have I have you? notes from two. Okay. Yeah. I, and two very interesting in different times. Right. Well, okay. Let, let's talk about that a little, because I gather that they are, they're kind of a theatrical band live, aren't they? Like a lot of prog bands, you know, they put a lot of emphasis into like the visuals and the stage show. So what's interesting about, this album in particular. So yes, first of all, they they uh, I've seen them both where it was a not a, not a dress down set, but the first time I saw them, they opened <laughs> Plain <for> clothes. <laughs> right, the first time I saw them, they opened for Metallica. Uh, it was on this tour in Wow, the, really? Justice for All tour. So I saw Queensrÿche open for Metallica. My friend John, who uh, I think his Twitter name is Guitar Freak seventy three or something, but he the, he listens to the show and he. And he is a big fan of talking about metal. It was his first show. And I think it was my second or third concert because I had seen ACDC uh, once before and they opened. And so my introduction to Queensryche was when uh, on MTV, they released the single off of this album, which is the last song on the album, Eyes of a Stranger. Mm -hmm. And we ended up seeing them on tour and then we totally bought the album and, and absolutely loved them. So it wasn't that theatrical then, um, I remember it, and this was, geez, 1989. Well, when you're supporting, you can't, you know, it's difficult exactly. to be that theatrical because you can't take over the stage the way you can when you're headlining. Right. But I also saw them in the early 2000s, and I have notes about this somewhere, and it was called, the performance was called An Evening with Queensryche. And basically what they would do <laughs> is they would, uh, which is a little pretentious, I know, but they, what they would do is they would come out and play hits for about an hour off of all of their albums and then they would take a break and then they would come back and they would play this album in its entirety. Right. right. And what was great about that is they had Pamela Moore, who is the voice of sister Mary 
um, the, the singing voice of Sister Mary on this album, um, she came with them on tour. And so there was videos in the background. There was, it was a theatrical production. I mean, it wasn't like a ton of other actors other than them, but Pamela Moore was there. She was playing Sister Mary. Some of the scenes would sort of be acted out on the stage and they would have like these clips playing in the background. You can kind of see a lot of that if you get the DVD of this um, album, which is called Operation Live Crime. They show you oh, oh. the, uh, <laughs> exactly, right? They show you the, um, sort of clips and interludes that a lot you hear a lot of on the album but there's a visual element to them too right, so right. so they do have this whole especially for this album which makes perfect sense a very theatrical piece to that and and this was um this album is something that now Jeff Tate who is no longer in Queensryche is essentially basing the future of his career around and we can sort of talk about that in a minute but um but yeah this album was extremely theatrical for them mm. yeah it's i mean like I say, I, I always sort of thought of them as prog soft rock, although I know that they kind of labeled themselves at least to start with as prog metal, yes. um, which is like, I, I love uh, a good bit of prog rock. I'm a big Genesis fan. I love early Marillion. Um, you know, I love a good bit of pity Gabriel. I love a good bit of prog rock. Um, but of course no, that is very much all of those bands have, you know they've never claimed to be metal they are prog rock they've never sure. said we're a heavy metal band um so it was a little my expectations going into this were a little different if you like just because i wasn't quite sure what to expect how heavy it would be how sort of uh on the side of metal as opposed to prog rock you know sure. it would be um and what's interesting, too, the, the one thing before we dive into all of this stuff that I just wanted to give a quick shout out to, um, because as we record this now, the Slayer episode, which is episode two of Thrash It Out, is now out, and it's gotten some very positive reactions that we are extremely excited to hear and read, and I've had amazing conversations on Twitter with people, so I just pulled a couple quick comments that, that people had put, um, and my favorite one of the week is by a user named Talon Smash on Twitter. And, and he said, listening to Thrash It Out from Anthony Johnson and C. Brian Wright, and you can actually hear the love of metal in their voice. Amazing. Yeah, I saw that one. That was very nice. Thank you. That was extremely uh, nice. And then um, there was a couple more. Uh, Don Cardenas said, I've gushed enough about this already, but if uh, but you and C. Brian Wright were like 95% in line with my thoughts about St. Anger. Hell of a start. Uh, my friend John said, love the episode, gentlemen. Cool that I can relate to everything discussed. First concert was Metallica in Queensryche. And so obviously we're talking about that today. Um, what David I liked Wint was one of the reviews on iTunes with a guy who said basically that we absolutely did not change his mind about St. Anger at all, but he enjoyed it enough that he's still going to listen. And that's, I love that. Uh, that's great. That's exactly, you know, we know that we're not going to change one another's minds necessarily all the time. And we're certainly not out to try and persuade everybody else that you should like all the same stuff we do, but hopefully you just find this discussion interesting you know, because we do, we're long time music fans. This is what we do. We talk about music. And we were fortunate enough to grow up in an era where you had music shops and you could go down to the local. And we talk about this when we talk about comics all the time too. Right. But we had, we grew up in this era where you could go down to the local record store and you could have these conversations with the owner of the store. I mean, I'm lucky to have that element still here where I live, but most people don't have that anymore. 
And so I other never than really message had board that. chatter. Oh, you did? No, I never really had the stuff. I mean, we had record stores, but the people who ran them, my the sort of the Venn diagram crossover of my tastes and theirs was very, very small. Uh, oh, okay. Cud, REM, that was probably about it. You know, uh, maybe a bit of, um, uh, what were they, Ned's Atomic Dustbin. You know, these are all okay, bands yep. that I'm sure you've never heard of. Um, I have heard of Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Oh, you have? Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah, there was very little crossover. Certainly the like the goth and the metal end of my tastes, there was nobody except my actual friends that I could talk about that with. Certainly nobody in any of the music stores in the town where I grew up which was a you know, small town, um, sure. w- wanted to talk about that sort of thing. So it actually was kind of a, not solitary, that's not fair to say that, but it, it wasn't something where I could, as you say, like comics, where it's very easy to go to the comic store on a Wednesday, hang out and chat with other people who read comics. Mm-hmm. You probably read some of the same comics, have a good chinwag. I couldn't do that quite so easily with music just because my tastes were so different to most of the people in those stores. Yeah, well, man, I, I guess I was spoiled then because it was such an integral part of my high school years, especially my my sort of seventh and eighth middle school into high school years. It was definitely a thing where I was working at the grocery store. The music store was right next to it. I would cash my check, go over there. You know, my friend and I would sort of spend all of our money on every new um, release that came out. And so it was just constantly... It was kind of like comics are now and, and things like that, where it was just so much part of my daily discussion with all of my friends. And, and right. as you had your circle who enjoyed the same things as you, obviously I did too at school and, you know, and outside of school just had friends that were, we were all into the same music. So it was just constantly, and, and at the time MTV actually showed music as well. And you yes. had Headbangers Ball <laughs> I remember on those days. <laughs> yeah, right. And so between Headbangers Ball that we would stay up on Saturday nights and, and watch and, you know, stuff like that, it was just a constant discussion. Um, the one last comment I want to read from uh, Twitter here, Lenny Reed said, listening to the Thrash It Out podcast with Anton Johnson and C. Brian Wright with the album playing underneath my new favorite thing. So he actually oh, queued wow. up the album that I think it was the Slayer one, uh, South of Heaven, that we were talking about and had that sort of playing underneath us talking about the album. And, and presumably I, on repeat because the album's only half an hour long. I know, he probably had to listen to it a couple times, at least two and a half times to get through that <laughs> that particular episode. But uh, but I thought that was pretty awesome too. So if you, I, we definitely recommend, you know, we that's why we announce it at the end of the episode. We want you to go and listen and seek out and, and at least give a good listen to the album that we're going to talk about the following week. But if you want to throw it on underneath the podcast too, by all means. Yeah, interesting, um, interesting. So yeah, so great feedback. People have left awesome reviews on itunes um that's that's just really it is appreciated. wonderful and again let us say you know yes once again we know it's the man everybody hates itunes but you until you've done something like this you probably don't realize just how important itunes is for people finding podcasts um yes. you know it is the number one way that people that everyone pretty much around the world finds podcasts so if you're enjoying the show please you don't have to necessarily give us a review, but at least go to iTunes and give us a rating because those star ratings really, really matter in terms of what gets shown and featured on iTunes. So yeah, please spread the word, read us on iTunes. And of course, remember, uh, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash thrash it out and support us to help us make the show. That would be very nice. Thank you. Very nice. And so uh, to, to get back to Queensryche as a band and sort of their sound and where they came from, and you were talking about how you know, you hear silent lucidity and, and that doesn't scream metal. 
um, and you're, you're sort of wondering if they sort of misuse that label when talking about them. The the metal days of Queensryche start. They started metal, so they released an EP in uh, 1982, I believe. Uh, it was released '83. I'm sorry, it's, and right. it was just labeled Queensryche, and it was four songs. And the very first song on the album, which you can find this on YouTube, and you can certainly buy this EP, is called Queen of the Reich. So, obviously, that's where they get their name from. And it is so metal. Right out of the gate, it's just kick-you-in-the-face metal with Jeff Tate's screams over the top of it. Like, it's the song that when they got a new singer, all anybody cared about was whether or not he could sing this song. And once right, he was right. able to sing the song, everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay, he'll be fine then. Right. <laughs> you know, like he can sing Queen of the Reich. That's, everything's good. So, so they came out very metal, but they were, they were definitely prog. Like the first three albums, Queensryche, The Warning, well, Queensryche's an EP, but The Warning and Rage for Order, there's kind of like a, a hodgepodge of styles that they have over those albums. There's definitely metal and very heavy metal songs, but obviously have with that very sort of clean Queensryche sound and um, a lot of sort of interesting compositions and stuff like that. And But it was sort of a bit all over the place. This album, Operation Mindcrime, was where they sort of took the, the best of what they had done as a group over those first three efforts and really focused it from a lyrical standpoint, from a composition standpoint, and it all sort of came together. And so you get bits and pieces of that. And I would highly recommend all three of those first Queensryche, um, The Warning, and Rage for Order. All fantastic. I loved all of them. and But I didn't discover them until this album. This was the album that introduced me to Queensryche. And so hmm. it made me want to go back and dig. And then Empire, even though Silent Lucidity is a song on that, that is still an album that features a lot of at the very least, hard rock, and I would say you could certainly call some of those songs metal. And that bunch of albums sort of ends Queensryche's time as that type of band. They are one of the bands I would put up there. Uh, we talked about this with Metallica, how their sound really changed. Mm-hmm. Queensryche, I would say, and Def Leppard are three bands that I immediately think of when people say like two completely different careers. Th- this is one of those bands. Like Once you get past Empire they became much more of the band that your parents listened to. They became much more watered down, much more, nowhere near as progressive. And and they were no longer pushing the envelope in a rock and metal way. They were doing some interesting things in a musical way, but they completely lost me after Empire. But until then, and with this album, they definitely were just flat out amazing. And... um, in in terms of the sort of rock metal thing, I mean, you know, you can argue all day about what's rock, what's metal, you know, where's sure. the where's the dividing line. My feeling is that this this is light metal. It is metal because you have tracks like uh, Breaking the Silence and The Needle mm-hmm. Lies, which like, you know, those are, you ain't going to find those on a Brian Adams album, you know? Yes, Tho- correct. Those are metal. So it, it is, it does cross the line into metal, but it is very light metal. I think much much lighter than what I would normally listen to. I must say. Sure, I totally agree with that, and and you you're absolutely right. And there are so many sort of flavors of metal and categories that I'm sure I'll use the wrong you know uh, monikers it, for it, at certain times. But like it, I listened to quote unquote hair metal growing up. Now you could certainly make the case that most of the quote unquote hair metal that I listened to was hard rock at best. 
right, and right. certainly not metal. Um, but it was thrown under. It was on Headbangers Ball. It was all yeah. packaged as metal here in the U.S. It was all packaged as as sort of part of the same thing. Even Guns and Roses were thrown in the metal category. Right. Well, I was um, going to say Guns and Roses are kind of the poster child for that. You know, sure. more arguments about whether they are hard rock or heavy metal than any other band I can think of. <laughs> right. So you had sort of your glam metal. You sort of had all these different sort of things that were thrown in um, because it was all kind of happening at the same time. And so yeah. when we we definitely use metal as a broad term, but I would agree with you. They are. They, this is not Slayer. You know, this is not Megadeth or Metallica or right. Anthrax. But at this the same is... time, it is not Queen. And it's Correct. not, as I say, it's not Brian Adams or, um, I don't know, Eric Clapton or something. You know, it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, or Marillion, in fact. Sure. You know, it, it does it does cross that line, I think, for me, into um, into metal, which is, which is good, you know, overall. Um, because that is interesting. Because like I said, I love bands like Genesis and Marillion and stuff. If this had been a pale copy of those, it would be, you know, far less interesting. Sure. And and so you have this band at the time in Queensryche who was not super well-known. They were not, you know, uh, they certainly weren't at the top of the charts. They weren't a band on everybody's lips at the time. And they decide with their third major studio album to do this ambitious concept album, which... I mean, first of all, most concept albums don't work. You know, it's not something that... There's been a lot more failed concept albums than successful concept albums over the year. It's a big undertaking to to try and, you know, do something where everything strings together and you're telling this overarching story and, and that kind of stuff. And so it was a pretty ballsy move at the time for them to decide, we're not even that well-known yet, but we're going to come out of the gate with this. Mm-hmm. We're going to create this this sort of epic story of politics and religion and drug addiction and and obviously it was a, a time where a lot of these things were a, a lot of unrest was happening over here in the states and what's amazing to me is you listen to this album in 2015 nothing has changed nothing has changed in terms of the 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 things that people are frustrated with and the things that people feel haven't changed over the years and and the the need for change and the want of you know revolution and so it's it's an album that especially the first side of there are things that i think uh both kids who were into metal who tend to be sort of that's their catharsis that's that's where they get their frustrations out that's where you know the music understands them i think that's one of the reasons that we all sort of got into to metal at some point when we were kids so it certainly resonated with me as a as a teenager it was like, yeah, the man, and I don't like the man, and blah 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 blah. <laughs> and but even now, today, as an adult, when I go back and listen to this, I'm like, wow, it's it's sad, but also interesting how many of these issues that they're trying to deal with on this album, whether they do it successfully or not, is another question. But that they're trying to deal with that are still very much present today in our current society. It's because we live in the cyberpunk future, man. And, I know, right? Well, and this is, I mean, the, the whole sort of feel of the concept anyway of, of this album is very late 80s cyberpunk. Um, yes. I mean, it, it's not like it's a, it's not like it's an explicitly cyberpunk story like the Cassandra Complex's cyberpunk's album or even Billy Idol's bloody cyberpunk album, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all the same concerns and you get that. Uh, it evokes the sort of, you know, rain on the streets at night sort of thing in the, in yes. the dark alleys. You know, it's, it is the, very much that kind of cyberpunk feel. And I think that's probably, that 
contributes to why a lot of it, yeah, as you say, it's still relevant now in terms of the issues that some of the issues anyway that they're talking about, yeah. And like for me, as a kid who liked to spend a lot of time in his own head, you know, I played role-playing games. I was into video games. I was a super avid reader who really liked to, to you know, get immersed in stories that had this sort of overarching world and all this kind of stuff. To have a, and then I loved music. To have a band come along that was playing my kind of music and then was telling me this story as they did it. And was doing it in a in a way that they actually executed very well on it. This album for me became something that I would fall asleep to at night. I mean, my my buddy John who listens to the show, like when we when I would crash at his house, like this would be the album that we would put on at night. This was an album that you wanted to put your headphones on or put on the stereo, shut the lights off, and just experience the entire album from front to back. It was wow. like a bedtime story for me. It was something that I just continued to listen because there's so many parts of this story that you are filling in the cracks of as a listener um almost in the same way that with comics you're doing a lot of work outside of the panels to sort of put mm. you know the story together in your head and it leaves certain things open for interpretation even though there's a pretty clear narrative running through this album um it was just something that fascinated me and it still fascinates me it's still an album that when i put it in i cannot listen to the one track off of this album if i start this album I have to finish this album because it's a story and I have to finish the story. And so it's 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 one of those albums that for me is like a Desert Island album. Like if you could take right, one right. album <laughs> with like this is the one because it's also designed to be infinitely replayable and we'll talk about that as we go through the tracks, but it it loops all the way back around by the end of the album so that it delivers you right to the doorstep of the very beginning. So it's made for you to continue to experience that story, which I think is is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, I, you and I are, we are brothers from another mother. Um, yes. And in terms of, yeah, growing up, reading, you know, all the time, uh, living in my own head, playing role-playing games, all of that, yeah, you know, the same. Um, the difference is that uh, thanks to my, and I won't go into this in too much detail, but thanks to my father and my uncle, his brother, um, Genesis were actually the band that sort of did that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we sort of storytelling through music in a fantasy milieu, that kind of thing. Uh, and then later Marillion as well. Uh, and then on the metal side, um, it was mainly Halloween, actually, <laughs> that sort of scratched that itch for me. Probably when I would have, would have been around the same age as you were listening to to this. Um, and of course, Halloween famously did a couple of concept albums. Well, they've done more than that, but, you know, in their early career, um, yep. they famously did Keeper of the Seven Keys, part one and part two. Which, which is what were, drew me to them, by the way. That was my introduction to right. them, you know, with I Want Out. Was, oh, I want that, was the, that was the Headbangers Ball one, which song. was from part two, right? Yeah, that's right. I believe, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, so uh, again, I love concept albums. Uh, Genesis famously did a, a double concept album called The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is an absolute classic, uh, and was actually the album that uh, caused Peter Gabriel to leave Genesis. Um, that's a very long story. Marillion, uh, their first three albums are... Well, you could technically say the first four albums are all one big, long concept that kind of ties together. Um, Fear Factory even do concept albums. That's one of the reasons, things I like about Fear Factory. And I should, you know, admit, if you like, that a lot of these concepts and stories are not exactly high literature. You know, mm-hmm. Keeper of the Seven Keys makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Um, it, this, you know, there are songs on there that are like, this is clearly nothing to do with the concept, but they're still good songs. And... 
and Fear Factory again. I mean, they are very kind of like teenage naive, you know, sci-fi high school sci-fi story uh, concept albums. But they are great songs, and they are interesting and exciting. And that's the thing I think for, in that's the thing for me is like it's so interesting, like to to, to just this idea of like trying to create a story that links all these songs together and not have songs that are just throwaway because you have to get from point A to point B. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating as a writer to, to think about the undertaking mm, that is absolutely. creating a concept album. It just really is, um, and, and as you mentioned, so difficult to do, right? And most of these concept albums, there are shortcomings, and many of them don't work, either narratively or musically, for, for just the reasons that we just talked about. And so, so few of them are actually memorable that I think one of the things that that just sort of is a testament to Queensryche's efforts on this album is that this is an album that when people talk about Queensryche, they do talk about. When people talk about concept albums, they do talk about. You have um, There was a list that uh, Guitar World put together of their top 10 concept albums of all time, and Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime ranked number four behind Genesis's The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Mm-hmm. And uh, the Who's Tommy? So oh, Tommy, Tommy, of course, yeah. So you've yeah. got the Who, you've got Pink Floyd, you've got Genesis, and then Queensrÿche. Wow, that's so. This pr- is that's this pretty is excellent a, company to be th- in, isn't right? it? Right. <laughs> I mean, like I, when I saw it was four, I was like four. It's obviously number one. And then I went and read the list, and I thought, you know what? To be ranked, first of all, even in the top five, right, of but any immediately album, behind those three albums, behind those yeah. three, right? So yeah. you can't argue with any of those three. So those three albums were all amazing and then if i was making a list of the best concept albums of all time all of those would be on it and so mm, yeah but what company that they're keeping with that and it's a hard rock slash metal album which i would argue might be even more difficult to pull something right. like this none of the with. others are yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. so um so yeah i mean just it's place in history as i mentioned at the time it came out it wasn't amazingly successful like it wasn't it it didn't rocket that them to stardom even though it was very critically well received it wasn't a huge selling album it did eventually go platinum um however its legacy is what has sort of vaulted it into the mind space of metal fans and sort of the landscape where as i mentioned it was ranked fourth on guitar world's uh, chart here it was ranked by kerrang at one point as the 34th greatest heavy metal album of all time Wow! So it was. Uh, so it was on. The, and and these are just a couple. I could pull lists. Kerrang has always been fickle, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I, and now that list has changed over the years, obviously. But if you pulled up fifty top one hundred metal albums of all time, Queensrÿche would be on all of them. This album would be on all of them. It, it is. It is critically lauded as an amazing album. And so it, it's just one of those things that even though Empire outsold it. And Silent Lucidity is a song that is pointed to as this breakthrough hit for them. This album, for longtime metal fans, is one that they point to as like, "Holy shit! How did they even do that?" It, you know. So it, it's, uh, it was also a couple of songs on this album. Uh, I don't believe in love was nominated for a Grammy. Uh, there was that few... was the one they nominated for a Grammy. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of all the songs on this album, which is interesting because it was the they released two singles off of this album. It was uh, Eyes of a Stranger, which was the first one, which introduced many people to Queensryche, as it did for me. And then I Don't Believe in Love was the other uh, single Those that came the off singles. of this album. Wow. 
What the blazes? I know, right? Which is crazy because I would have picked probably seven different songs and then that. Right. Pretty much um, any other song off the, well, maybe not any, but, you know, and many other songs off this album over those two. Well, Eyes of a Stranger at least is catchy, but I don't believe, oh my goodness, that's a really weird choice for a single. Right? Really weird. So, and, and here's, uh, here's something that you will probably find interesting. Queensryche as a band have sold over 20 million albums worldwide. Oh, wow. Excellent. Six million in the United States alone. So they're big all over the world, mm. um, and that's a lot of albums to yes, have sold no, over their on. career. So, so they definitely have had this long and storied career. Um, now, okay, the band well, that, it- that's good. That makes yeah. me feel better uh, about. Uh, uh, it's time to sort of drop the bombshell, which is I didn't actually like this album. <laughs> that that hurts me in my soul. I know, but and I'm sorry, that is man. The nature of the show, so <laughs> sorry, I will have man. to accept but that. That's the like I was saying. I love concert albums. I love prog bands and what have you. Um, but this one just for me, it just misses the mark. Okay, uh, but I feel better about saying that now, knowing that they are so successful that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> what I'm right, that, that you're not uh, you're not killing their career by. Well, uh, I'm not by kicking threat. somebody when they're down. Yeah, right. If they don't get, it's like Siskel and Ebert over here in the states. Yeah. Like if you if if we don't both give the thumbs up, it's detrimental to right, a band's yeah. career for some Dead. reason. So so yeah. So uh, but this is the metal arguments. So we we will we Indeed, will get into yeah. that in a second. Now uh, before we dive into the actual album, just a little bit more about the band's history. Sure. So at the time. Uh, this was a very solid lineup that went for uh, through the Empire album. So it was Jeff Tate on vocals, Chris DeGarmo on guitar, Michael Wilton on guitar, Eddie Jackson on bass, and Scott Rockenfield is the drummer. And that was the core group. And Chris DeGarmo was the first one of that group to leave the band. He left in 1997. And then there was a very famous falling out in June of 2012 where Jeff Tate was basically fired from this band. And if there was ever a band that people thought would not be able to continue without their singer, it was Queensryche. Because obviously Jeff Tate has a very um, specific vocal style, and not many singers out there are going to be able to do what he does. And so there was a big falling out. From what I've read, there was a lot of stuff with... um, uh, I, I think it was Tate's wife at the time who was involved in the management of the band and stuff like that. But, oh, never but what, a good idea. Never a good idea. So, But, but <laughs> so what it basically came fans. down to is I believe it came down to as time went on, he himself was exerting more creative control over the band. He um, basically forced them into a very ill-advised sequel to this album um, years ago, uh, Mind Crime 2, and it is garbage. Um Although Ronnie James Dio plays the part of Dr. X on that second album. I won't say, you know, it's worth listening to at least once. And there's a couple of decent songs on it. But it was compared to, it's a pale shadow of what they tried to do here. But that was something that Jeff Tate wanted to do. He sort of pushed them into doing that. And uh, and so, yeah, the band had a falling out. There was a whole argument and court case over the name of the band, who was going to be able to use Queensryche, which was settled, I want to say, in like 2014. But basically now, Queensryche still exists as a band. Jeff Tate now exists with his group called Operation Mindcrime. So he named his new band after this album. And the details of the court settlement are that he is the only one who is allowed to perform this album in its entirety, live, 
as well as Operation Mindcrime 2. So the terms of their deal were that wow. um, that Queensryche as a band now is not allowed to perform this album from start to finish. Only Jeff Tate is, and also with Operation Mindcrime 2. Um, that doesn't mean they can't play songs off of these albums, but they can't do what they had done in the past, which was they would go on tour and do half hits and half this entire right, album. Right. And then for a while, they were playing both albums back to back. So they would play uh, Mindcrime 1 and 2. If I was in the band just to just for the hell of it, I think I'd probably play the whole album backwards. There you go. Or out <laughs> like of perform order. Perform the whole just album. Just shuffle and just backwards. play the set yeah. list like completely out of <laughs> no, order. No, literally just play it back to front just to screw with them. <laughs> right? You probably could do that. Um I'm sure the the uh I'm sure the lawyers would have something to say about that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um Todd Latori, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, was the lead singer of a band called Crimson Glory, I believe, and he is the new singer of Queensrike. Now, um, they had sort of heard him, and he has a voice that is certainly capable of singing Jeff Tate-style vocals, although I almost feel like he has a little bit more range when I listen to him now. He came in because the group, when things were falling apart with Jeff Tate, they were starting to do a side project, and this guy was going to be the Uh. singer for their side project because they knew things weren't going well, and they needed to make money and all that kind of stuff. And so when the whole falling out with Jeff Tate happened, he actually... um, came in and is their new singer now and talk about a guy trying to fill some pretty big shoes um this was the guy todd latore who you know as soon as they announced that he was the new singer i started doing some youtube searches for him and everything like that and there was a youtube video of him singing queen of the reich with queen's and that video is pretty much what everybody saw and went, oh, okay, everything's fine. Everything's going to be great. Like, he's, well, Queen's Drake will be okay. Because well, a bit like you were saying about the Exodus, uh, ex-Exodus guitarist with Slayer. I with Gary Holt, absolutely. Yeah, and, Gary Holt, yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of longtime fans have become, almost like the Metallica situation, have become very bitter towards the group over uh, up until 2013 because they had strayed so far from what people thought was their original sound. And so you had this group who was borderline metal when they first started, and at the very least hard rock through their first five albums, start to drift into this much more sort of watered-down, experimental version that people just did not like. And when they went out and played concerts, they played mostly their old stuff because that's what people wanted to hear. Right, and right. so, you know, the See, that's never of, a good sign, is it? If the only no. thing people want to hear when they turn up to see you live, all they want to hear is stuff from your first few albums. Absolutely. And so what what they did in 2013 when Todd Latore came in is they put out a new album, which is kind of a short album, but it's worth picking up, and it's just called Queensryche. It's in 2013, and it was really sort of just an, an album that they put out there to say, hey, we're going to be okay. If you liked old Queensryche and you uh, are concerned about our new vocalist, why don't you listen to this, and I think you'll be put at ease. And then, So basically it was an album where a lot of old Queensryche fans, including myself, listened to and went, oh, okay, I like this. We're going, we're, Let's we're go sort back. of, yeah. Yep, yeah, we're recapturing that, but not in a way that feels like they're trying to redo Rage for Order or The Warning or, or Mind Crime or anything like that. So they're working on a new album right now um, that's going to be coming out probably in 2016. But Queensryche is in a good place again. This guy can sing all of those songs. So if you get a chance to go out and see them, live i would recommend checking out and check out the the 2013 um album because i think what happened with jeff tate is as he exerted more creative control over the band he's playing more music that he's interested in and creating more music that he's interested in which is not what the original Queensryche sound was um and if you look on this album you'll see that there's a lot more collaboration on the songwriting than i think you'll see in later albums right 
Can I just say, as and this is nothing to do with Queensryche per se, but these days a lot of young bands get stick from you know old fogies like you and me mostly mm-hmm. uh, for taking endorsements and sponsorships and making deals with people and having like 10 side projects and their own clothing lines and selling loads of merchandise and all that sort of stuff. And here is a band who have toured the world for 30 years, sold 20 million albums. And you were saying that they were basically like running out of money that they needed to make money. And that's why they made this sequel to Minecraft. That blows my mind. This is how fucked up the record industry is, the traditional record industry. And this is why, if you ever wonder why a lot of new bands are doing all that stuff, it's because they've seen this. They've seen this happen. And they go, well, that's not going to happen to us. Let's make sure that we've got as many sources of income as possible, rather than relying on a record label. And, and you also see now why bands like Megadeth, and I just mentioned the Queensryche album that they're doing, are using sites like Pledge Music, where right, it's yeah. essentially, it's not necessarily a Kickstarter, it's basically them saying like, look, we're doing this album anyways, but if you want to get access to behind-the-scenes studio videos or interviews with the creators of the album, or you even want to pledge and get things that are being used to make the album. Like you can go on the Megadeth one or the Queensryche one. You can get bass guitars, guitars yep. that are used in the studio. You can get lyric sheets. You can get all that kind of stuff. You can get how they're plotting out songs and stuff like that. You can get the notes from that stuff. So it, they're using avenues like that to generate income for the band because the the landscape that they're trying to create albums in now is just not even one that's set up for albums anymore. Yeah. Like it's I, set up for singles. Like and you- so. I've used Pledge Music, actually. I used it to uh, help fund Helen Marnie's solo album, after uh-huh. um, her first solo album after Ladytron kind of, not split up, but just kind of ended. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's 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 good. Yeah, you, as you say, you get loads of, you know, oh, it depends on the artist, but you can get loads of good stuff. It's a reputable site. Um, and the funny thing to me is I was working on uh, .NET, the internet magazine, back when they did this, but one of the first bands to do this sort of thing, funnily enough, was Marillion. Wow. They were one of the first bands to really go, okay, like we've been dropped. Uh, we can't sell. We, we know we have a hardcore fan base, but it's not enough for a record label to care. Uh, what can we do? And they literally went to the fans. And I think every album they've done, and this was in like the late 90s, early 2000s, every album they've done since then has basically been fan funded. And then they've made distribution agreements with, companies to get it into stores but the fans get you know all manner of extras they get exclusives by essentially pre-ordering the album um they have uh, you know marillion fan days where you know fans can turn up meet the band that's sort of you know a marillion con essentially but they were one of the first bands to to really innovate in this way and i remember at the time when they did it thinking like wow that's interesting and different and i wonder if it'll work and of course now now it's kickstarter now it's crowdfunding you know sure. now everybody knows that model it's incredible yeah it, it is really it, i can't even imagine what it is like for a band especially a band who has existed in the old model to try and even to make that transition yeah, I, I yeah. Do, it's just amazing like i remember watching overkill's videos about how they made just the, just how the technology is different now just how a lot of these bands like You've you've got the band themselves engineering the record because mm, they just yep. you know what I mean they just don't have the money to bring in these engineers and stuff like that which oh that reminds me this album was produced by Peter Collins 
who was well known for producing some of Rush's albums, which makes perfect oh, sense. That so does he, make sense. Yeah, he had done Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, and then he also did Counterparts and Test for Echo. Uh, he did for Rush, and then he came back and did Empire with Queensrÿche as well. So he, the two albums that Queensrÿche is most well known for, are the two albums that uh, Peter Collins, you know, was the producer on. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so All right. interesting. All right, let's uh, let's dive into the album. Then we've we've yacked for long enough, and I have I still have many many more things to say <laughs> about this album, but let's do it in the context of the tracks. I think. Okay. So. Okay, so this album is a it's about an hour long yep uh and there are 15 tracks but some of them are like two minutes or even less than two minutes sure. skits and short instrumental passages and stuff yep. so l- let me tell you actually how i listened to this because this was an album this is the first album that we were talking about that i'd literally never heard before so uh taking your now well-trodden you know three listens <laughs> minimum thing on board oh good i don't have to mention it again <laughs> what i did was uh uh, first listen with with no research, nothing. I literally just grabbed the album, put it on, and listened to it. Second listen, uh, I started making notes, you know, um, and sort of, okay, listen, you know, sort of paying a bit more attention and whatever. And then uh, for the third listen, I actually went through with the lyrics. Um, awesome. Yeah, because what I had done basically on the second listen was when I started making notes about the story, you know, the actual concept and stuff. Sure. Um, and then I thought, and once I'd finished that, I thought, okay, now I'll get the lyrics and see if I was right. <laughs> um, and so third listen, I went through with the lyrics. And then since then, I've just listened to it, you know, again, uh, over and over. Um, but those were the first three, the way I approached the first three listens, if you like, because to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of the time, uh, with when I hear an album for the first time, I won't even look at the lyrics for a, uh-huh. a good long while. Um, but because I knew this was a concept album and had a narrative and a story and everything, I thought, well, I'm going to have to get to the lyrics sooner rather than later. So I'm so glad that you did that. And I think you just further refined our formula for, uh, for listening to albums for the show. <laughs> but but that, because the, there's so many great things about that. Like you said, I mean, the first time through, you are really just getting an overview of like, okay, even if it's not a concept album, like, okay, this is what they were trying to do on this album. Here's the overall sound of the album. And as you get into each of those subsequent listens, you start to be able to dig a little deeper. And I think that um, even if you didn't care for this album, I'm super excited that you approached it that way, because I think especially an album like this is one that sort of deserves that. And I think all albums deserve. So I, sure, I would yeah. love for our listeners, not that they have to take notes on the albums when they, <laughs> when they listen to them, but I would love if they did that, you know, in the, in the sense of, I like to listen to it a couple different ways. I like to listen to it with headphones. I like to listen to it in the car. I like to listen to it in a bigger space. Like I, because a lot of times the, the music is different based on how and where you're listening to it and right. stuff like that. And so me, well, like, and it's about approaching awesome. it with respect. Yes, um, thank you. You know, it's it really is just about approaching it without preconceptions and with respect. Uh, ironically, that's part of the problem is that I actually I think I was expecting too much uh-huh. of this album. Like I did approach it sort of with a completely blank canvas, with no idea of what I was laying myself in for, other than it's this is a famous concept album that everybody raves about, sure. and. And I think that's partly why, actually, I found it really disappointing because it just didn't live up to 
to what I was hoping for, I guess. Um, I mean, the first time through, all the little skits and instrumental passages, the first time through, I was like, well, there's only about four songs here. And the rest is all just like noodly filling in the blanks stuff. And of course, I realised, you know, and later listens, well, actually, no, all right, there's more than that. But I think uh, partly because of all the way that a lot of the tracks segue into one another, and partly because, to me, a lot of it sounds kind of the same. Uh, on first listen, I was just like, well... I think I that's think, an interesting yeah. criticism, and, and I think a valid one, too, and we can talk about that as we sort of get into because I think that that's, that's something that, especially on the second side of the album, it's a little bit more guilty right, of. Right, the second side um, especially, yeah. That, that's, and, I mean, and, going, going into it, I'll say the first side, which I assume ends with... Uh, well, it either ends with the mission or Sweet Sister Mary. It, it ends with the mission. And, right, and, okay. Yeah, and so... Right, and it, that first side is actually... That I would happily listen to again. That, yes. I think, is, is quite strong. But as soon as you flip the side, it all starts to fall apart. <laughs> okay, I don't think we're that far... Like, uh, again, I have an unabashed love for this album, and, and as I mentioned, it's a Desert Island album for me, but yeah, that yeah. is very valid, and I have similar feelings to that. So I don't think we're that far off on, on some of this stuff here, because I feel like the... Um, and this is, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up too, because depending on where people buy this, you, this is an album that's best listened to if you can get the CD or if you can get the album or if you can get the cassette or whatever, because a lot of times when they chop this up into MP3s, there's very noticeable um, switches between the songs, I guess I should say. Like when, when this album oh, flows together right. from an audio standpoint, it very much flows together. Like one song flows into the other. There is a lot of overlapping between songs. There's the things in the middle. And depending on on where you're getting this album from, some of that stuff might actually be cut off or the transitions oh, are wow. very stilted. Right. Um, not that all the, the missing stuff, because they did a good job of at least putting a, a lot of the narrative stuff in the actual song tracks themselves. But there's a lot of stuff that just feels very stilted when you listen to it Um from one to the other, or if you, right. or if you with, rip with the a gap CD. between yeah, the tracks, exactly. yeah, 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 exactly. And you don't really want gaps between this because it is designed to flow from front to back as sort of one long tail. Well, and again, that's a very prog thing, isn't it? You know, you think sure. of all the great sort of Genesis, Marillion albums, Pink Floyd. They do like feel they run into one another, and everything feels like one big long song. Yep. Which, as you said, with with a couple of the songs, I think on this album, sometimes maybe works against them. Yeah. Um, because of, of the similar sounds between them. But I was debating on whether or not to sort of talk about the story as its own separate thing, but I think it will just unfold it as we go through the tracks. I think that makes the most sense to sort of I, do I that. Think, I think we could talk about it as a separate thing. My worry is that if we did, we'd be here for another three hours. Sure. So let's just do it track by track. So you, so you, you open with one of those uh, skits that we talked about where you basically have a, a 21-year-old kid named Nikki who is now in the hospital he is in his hospital room and you can hear the you know the intercom outside you can hear the nurse coming down the hallway and on the background on the television you can hear the newscaster talking about a series of political and religious murders that have happened recently in the city and how the police don't have any leads but they seem to have stopped as suddenly as they started so that I should point out here that all that preamble stuff that you mentioned, like you have no idea at this point that this is a kid called Nikki who's 21 years old or anything. You're just hearing the sounds in the hospital. Correct. You you hear the guy talking about it. You hear the nurse come in. Um, I will mention because I thought this was funny and I, I sort of chuckle every time I listen to this. People are probably very familiar with the Wilhelm scream. 
which is the scream oh, yeah. that you hear in <laughs> over 200 movies. It's this very, you know, um, iconic scream that they sort of throw into the sound effects. Well, the sound effects of the doctors being paged at the beginning of this album and again towards the end of the album are is basically the Wilhelm scream for hospital settings. Oh, really? And so, yes, like countless Dr. Davis, Dr. Davis, telephone, please. Dr. J. Hamilton. Like if you watch soap operas, if you watched ER, if you watch it, like that is like standard background. I did um, not know that sound effect. And it just makes me laugh every time that I hear that because uh, it's just this sort of very generic, like Dr. J. Hamilton. And so uh, it, that just makes me laugh. So the nurse comes in and Mm -hmm. says, what are you doing out of bed? It's past curfew. Perhaps you need another shot injecting with something. Uh, and then walks away and says, what is it? Sweet dreams, you bastard. <laughs> right. Because at this point, you and as you mentioned, you don't know this, but at this point, this guy is uh, you, you know, someone who's just been arrested potentially for several murders. He was found with a gun on him, and he's not very well liked among the medical staff that are taking care of him. Um, so I will say that going in knowing it was a concept album, I, I actually, and I don't think this is because I'm some super genius. I, mean, I think anybody going in, knowing that it's a concept album and how concept albums work would figure out that clearly what the newscast is talking about is important. You know, sure. Stuff wouldn't be there unless it was yep. important. And yeah, I figured out like, oh, okay, well, clearly this is the guy. He's committed some murders. That's why the nurse insults him and gives him a sedative to like, you know, keep him down or whatever. Um, so I, I'd already figured out, I mean, I didn't know his name or anything or the d- details of how he was found, but I'd already figured out that that was where we were going to go. And the fact that the track's called I Remember Now, I was like, Jim, I wonder if he's lost his memory. <laughs> right. And and he's sort of like, as he as the sedative starts to take effect, it's kind of like a fever dream remembering of um, the events that led him to this time and place. I remember now. I remember how it started. I can't remember yesterday. I just remember doing what they told me, told me, told me, told me. And so he, you're, you're coming in at the end of the story, and he is now remembering what has happened to him. And that sort of flows right into the next, uh, the first musical piece, which is Anarchy X. That is designed to give you an idea of who our main villain is, which is a guy by the name of Dr. X. And what you hear in the background, although you can't hear it well, and I had to look this up, is you hear him talking to a rally of people. And there's a man who is shouting, and he's saying, do we have freedom? Do we have equality? This country is changing. It's no longer for all of the people. It's for some of the people. So you're establishing here that there is this movement afoot to wake up the lower class and and to um to sort of rise up against this growing sort of corporate religious political machine that is keeping the average man down that's kind of what the setup is here and and this charismatic dr x is a guy who's sort of behind this movement of um trying to start a revolution 
Right. Again, which we don't find out until, well, to be fair, the, the very next, the first verse of the very next song. But nevertheless, at this point, we're just hearing, yeah, an instrumental with noises in the background. I'm not, that this was sort of the first misstep, if you like. I'm not convinced that sticking an instrumental here was the wisest choice because it is, you know, you're, you're advertising this as a concept album. People want to find out about the story and it doesn't really musically it doesn't add anything that like if they'd used this to create light motifs that they then might refer to late in later songs in the album uh how much better would that have been you know yeah how much more interesting would that have been but it's not it's just kind of well it reminds me you remember in the megadeth one of into the lungs of hell that it's you know thankfully unlike that track this is i think less than two minutes so at least this doesn't outstay its welcome but sure. it is just kind of noodling, showing off instrumental stuff rather than performing a function within it the is. concept. It is. It almost know? feels like, in some ways, it's saying and introducing your your performers for tonight. <laughs> right, here's yeah. Je- you know, outside of Jeff Tate, it's like here's uh, you know Eddie Jackson and, and here right. is Scott Rockenfield. And and I will say one thing that's abundantly clear from the get go is that and and one of the things that I love about this album is that everyone here gets their time to shine. What I, what I like about the production of this album is that uh, everything is right up front. And and uh, sometimes what gets overlooked, because both Chris DeGarmo and Michael Wilton are both great composers, they're both great guitar players, and Chris DeGarmo, I think for a lot of people, was when he left the band, that's when things <clears throat> you know started to, to dip a little bit. And of course, Jeff Tate's vocals. But Eddie Jackson, the bass player, and Scott Rockenfield, the drummer, if you listen to what's going on with those two over the course of the album, like they're they are holding this entire thing together, and you can sort of hear that right from they, the beginning. They are like, a very good rhythm section, yeah. And the production on this album is excellent, for, um, especially for 1988. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Unfortunately, I think this is another symptom of my old. You know, what would you rather have? Great production, right. bad songs, or bad production and great songs? And while I don't think these are, you know, these aren't terrible songs, but. Uh, it is a good example, I think, of great production, uh, you know, sort of not really doing anything. It doesn't It doesn't disguise the fact that, sure. uh, you know, for me, that a lot of the songs are a bit dull. So what I like about the end of this Anarchy X, though, is that it sort of has this solo at the end that builds into the next song, which is Revolution Calling. So, so yes. I, I think if it's if it's guilty of anything, Anarchy X, it's that it kind of meanders until it gets to the last ten seconds or so, and, um, and then it sort of has this rousing, you know, building, escalating, flip you over into the next song, <laughs> which is yeah, Revolution Calling. I'm really now you've kind of thrown me for a loop. I'm amazed that this was not a single off this album because 
I imagine that they play this live a lot. It this is, song is freaking it, awesome. It's, I mean, it's not instantly catchy because of the strange timing in the chorus lyrics. Correct. But it did get in my brain eventually. And I, I, if some, you know, if this was being played, I would sing along to it. It's probably the only track on this album that I could say that of. Um, well, and just the way the rhythm, like the, 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 the verse starts, like just how it stops. And then it's, and then he comes in yeah. and says, for a price I do about anything except pull the trigger. Right off the bat, you're like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, like, th- 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 let's talk about these lyrics. <laughs> well, again, okay, go ahead. They are, if, if Jeff Tate was German, I would be a lot more forgiving. Like, if English was not his first language, you know what I mean? It's funny that you say that. Okay, they are I can really... totally see it. So if this was a Halloween album, you'd give it more latitude. Is that what you're trying to say? L- lyrically, yes. Yeah, yes. okay. Because these lyrics are so on the nose, so... Uh, there's no subtext. They're, they're, they're so unambiguous in many, many places, sure. except, except where it matters, which we'll get to later. Very frustrating. Um, th- th- it's, I don't want to say artless. That's a bit, that's a bit harsh, <laughs> but I, as I was reading along, you know, the third listen with the lyrics, I was just like, Oh my God, there's like a lot of them don't scan properly because he's cramming in words. And I'm like, just, just be a little more poetic, you know? Uh-huh. It sounds like he's reading a news report. Um, and like I say, if he was yeah German or French or, you know, whatever, I would forgive this a lot more because you do hear that. I mean, you know, again, listen to the lyrics of Keeper of the Seven Keys. Um, good God, you know, but Mike Whitecath is German and English is not his first language. Right. So you can forgive a lot of the terrible lyrics sure. in that. Or not terrible, but naive lyrics. And a lot of these feel... Yeah, they feel naive. And this is um, where I think the album might show its age a little bit too, because I feel like if it was something that was done today, it would probably be a little more nuanced than it than it is. Maybe you know what that's I mean? that's a, that is a fair point. Yeah, yeah. But and, even and, so, even in the even in the eighties, you know, sure. there, were, there were bands. Yeah, there were bands that were doing a better job yeah. of that for sure. <laughs> um, but I also in this song, you're you're in the head of a twenty one year old kid. You know what I mean? So because this song is really about yeah. I, uh, I don't, you're right, but right. I think, I think it's a stretch that that's to where excuse. The, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll you give know. you that. <laughs> but but you're basically in this song. You're getting, um, you're getting sort of how Nikki is introduced to Doctor X, yep. and and how he is, and and he's just a cipher for you know everybody else as well in terms of like their their disillusionment at this point in time. So you know he's he, talking. He's about a junkie how, looking for meaning in his life, and Doctor X yes. promises it by giving him a purpose. Yeah, exactly. One hundred percent. You just nailed it all. So lyrically, we don't even have to get into the the specific lines. Um, but yes, that's exactly right. So he's this this kid who doesn't have a purpose, and Doctor X gives him a purpose. Um, and the song itself tonally is very sort of rousing. Like you know, it's. It's the, it, it takes his anger as, you know, just being a disenfranchised kid and, and focuses it by the end of the song. Yeah. And so oh, that's, yeah, yeah. that's kind of where that's coming from. And then, um, and then, this is, it's basically, this is my favorite song on the album, uh, which is a shame, you know, that it's peaked so early. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, it, I, but I think it's good because it is, right? Well, and the irony is that there are, Tracks later on that are heavier than this in terms of having your like you know a good little you know nice bit of metal chugging and stuff. Um, but I actually this feels like the heaviest track because of that rousing feel that you mentioned because it yeah. does feel like a sort of put your fists in the air and everybody sing along kind of feel. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny. The reason I like other songs are not because of... I think you might be right. This could be definitely one of the heaviest tracks on the album because there's things that I like about the other songs that are not necessarily how heavy they are. They're, right, they're right. you know, other bits and pieces. So um, so you get through the first song. Nicky's now sort of been... He, he's all excited about the fact that there's this this revolution that's going to be happening and, it, and it's something that is now giving him a purpose. And that's continued conceptually in the next song where you have the phone ring to start this particular song. And when he picks up the phone, it I kind of thought it was cool because in the background you hear a riff from the song playing and you hear Dr. X say Mind Crime, which is, you know, again, a little bit on the nose, but it is the, what, the word Do you that actually sort of, hear him say Mind Crime? Yeah, so he picks up the phone and he says hello, and then in the background you hear the riff and he says Mind Crime. Okay, I and need to listen back to that phone. again. He hangs up the phone and you hear him sort of sigh because now – that is the trigger word for him to uh, go into this brainwashed killer mode that he basically has become through a, through a mixture of drugs and indoctrination. He is an assassin for. He's a sleeper. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He's he's this assassin now for this movement called the underground. And you're, so this this song is about his sort of indoctrination. So while the first song was like, "Hey, I'm attracted to this movement." The second song is like, okay, now I'm being indoctrinated into this movement. That that's at least what it's trying to tell you here, yeah. and so he's got Doctor X, you know, taking him sort of under his wing and, and giving him that purpose. And so, so I'm going to have to go back and listen to the start of that because that was something that really confused me, and I'm glad actually that you cleared it up because uh, the like from all the lyrics and everything in that goes on in this and all the little skits and stuff, I thought it's you know it's an old story. You you program somebody so that when they hear a trigger word. They suddenly become an assassin. Yeah, you know it's the Manchurian Candidate writ large. Exactly, um, and this is like I've heard this described as Manchurian Candidate meets Romeo and Juliet is basically right. what the <laughs> what the high concept is um, in this one. Uh, but I thought the word was that the, the trigger word was revolution because that's the word that you hear. Uh, that is spoken the word you hear very much. Yes, way and, more often. And then I went reading up on it and some and read on some I don't know Queensryche fan wiki or something. The, the trigger word was mind crime. And I was like, but he never says that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you go back and listen to it, and again, that's that's where, and we mentioned this in the beginning, where you have uh, Anarchy X, where you can't really hear what Dr. X is saying in the background. They are guilty of that a couple times here. And this is another one where you're like not exactly sure what he said, but he does say mind crime. And he is that. So this song lyrically is about Nikki being brought into 
you know, this underground and Dr. X sort of brainwashing him and that kind of stuff. And, and lyrics like, I'm going to take away the questions. I'm going to make you sure. He's giving him a purpose. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's giving him, and he t- they talk about a hitman for the order when you couldn't go to school, blah, 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 blah. So he's, a, he's a, got a drug problem as all the stuff you mentioned at the beginning. And, and now because of those weaknesses, Dr. X is able to manipulate him and turn him into a weapon. And his goal is to uh, basically take out and replace some of the political and religious leaders um, so that he can start to, to you know, have control that that's sort of what his underground revolution is. That's what his nefarious plan is. Yeah. And so Nikki's targets are, you know, television preachers and politicians. Yeah. Uh, it's a weirdly timed chorus again. Like it's kind of odd that the first two big tracks on the album have sort of, you know, deliberately oddly timed choruses rather than sort of things that will instantly stick in your brain. I mean, I assume that's a deliberate choice. And they did this, as I say, this and Revolution Calling both grew on me over time. But It's also their style, I'll I'll point out too. So this is, I think, where you're seeing they tried to put this concept album template on their musical style, which especially on Rage for Order and The Warning was very much not three minute songs that are straight ahead that you, you know there's lots oh, sure, of sure. there's lots of um they're but kind they, of all over the place so they're, but they so have the, but they have choruses you know they yeah, have absolutely. very clear this is the chorus and these guys are clearly excellent musicians no question about that and so it's just odd to see guys who clearly know their way around you know a musical stave to uh to compose things like that in uh, that are so oddly timed that they don't I don't know I can understand not doing it on every track of course because sure. you want to keep things interesting but f- on these two tracks in particular which really set the tone for the whole album um, it just seemed odd to me that they wouldn't have more sort of bigger catchier choruses you right. know yeah they could have started in a more straight ahead fashion to get people in first and then right, yeah. and then sort of maybe experiment a little yeah. bit more and, um, and the way he enunciates <laughs> In the chorus bugs the hell out of me, I've got to say. Two things that I really like about this song is I think the solo is sort of, I I sort of envision the solo as um, the brainwashing piece of this, you know, with kind of like Nikki's, what he was and what he's becoming sort of tug of warring with one another as they're sort of going through that. And I love towards the end of the song, and I I thought I wrote down the time, but right towards the end, instead of, um, he sort of slides the notes you know, DeGarmo, uh, mm-hmm. as they're building towards the end of the song, it's like, and he just slides all of those notes. Whereas before they were very distinct sort of notes. And I just, little flares like that. I really, really like, um, so that's, so operation mind crime. Now we know this is how sort of Nikki got inducted into the order. And this is what's, this is sort of what his job is. He's a hired killer. And, um, so t- the next song, which is speak,
sort of seeing like once he's triggered, this is what he's like. You know, they've given me a mission. I don't really know the game. I'm bent on submission. Religion is to blame. I'm the new Messiah, Death Angel with a gun. So he's he's got a gun. He's pointed at a target, and he goes. He does what they tell him to do. Yeah, although um, that's not actually. This is one of those frustrating bits where it's not actually clear that this is meant to be okay. This is the song where we actually see him see here. You know what I mean? Where we, we hear him killing somebody. Where we hear him actually carrying out a mission, which is very frustrating because. If you miss that, if you miss that this track is supposed to be that, then suddenly you find yourself halfway through side two and you're like, wait a second, he hasn't killed anybody yet. What's going on? Right. Well, and and you bring up a great point there. You don't really, the murders themselves and who he murders and how outside of two, uh, outside of one very distinct character in this, um, you don't see all that stuff all happens in the background. Mm. And so even with speak, you know, you're, you're sort of, um, you're sort of seeing how, again, he's sort of indoctrinated and, and has a mission here, and they're explaining more about what his mindset is when he gets triggered and stuff like that. But you're not, even lyrically, you're not seeing him kill anybody. Actually kill anybody, no. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So so it's all, which I think from a from a conceptual standpoint, the first half of this album is building up to the big turning point, you know, sure, but, but sure. at this point he's fully invested. He's, he's part of this movement. He has his role to play. They've given me a mission. Um, it's, it's again, more of like, once he comes out of the brainwashing process, he is this focused tool yeah. of the, of the revolution. And what I love about this is when they say in the chorus, speak the word in the background, someone whispers revolution, which I know you just said made you think right. that, that was the trigger That's word. E- exactly. But, <laughs> but what I like about it is it's also talking about, all not just Nikki, but all of the people who are part of this movement. How Doctor X has basically, whether he's brainwashed them all, or whether he's got them all believing in his cause, or whatever, there is this sense of purpose and unity that Nikki now has with the other people that are part of this underground. Because when they say "speak the word," they say the word is all of us, and so revolution is the rallying cry of this underground group. And everybody feels like they're a part of something. And so it's really still building on that whole of what a manipulator that Dr. X is because he's he's got them all turned against the government and all turned against organized religion, and they're all part of something bigger. They're part of this revolution. They're going to change the world. And so that's kind of what I like because it gives you a, a sort of a wide view as well of not just Nikki, but here's what he's doing to these people. He's rallying them around this cry of revolution and they're going to change the world. You know, and the lyrics talk about corporations having everybody under their claw, rich control the government. It's all the same, you know, very, very sort of uh, cliched and uh, well-known tropes in terms of like what's wrong with the world today. Yeah. But they're all part of this. And, and you know, the, the chorus speak the word, the word is all of us. That, to me, is maybe the weakest song on the front side. Wow, really? I'm not blown away by this song. Okay, Um, wow. This this was the song of all, of the whole album, this was the, after one listen, this was the only song that stuck in my mind. This was the only one where I could actually hum back the chorus and go, oh yeah, yeah, that was a good one. I like that one. It's the only song on the whole album where I could do that. So, like, I made a couple of notes. Like, the the thing that uh, what sells this song for me is the whisper of revolution in the background, like, and and the the story that it's telling of how 
all of these people are sort of under his thumb. Um, but musically, it's it's not it, it doesn't ah, do a heck of a lot now, for me. For me, the thing that got me was that it doesn't sound like the rest of the album and the chorus, especially. It's the it's the only chorus where he drops his voice. Yes, and, as opposed to going higher. Right, as opposed yeah. to screaming higher. Uh, and you get that kind of, there's a bit of space for it to breathe, and it's just interesting. I find and it's very it, driven by drums, too. Yeah. Well, the rhythm section really front and center here. Yeah, but musically, I on a first listen, now as I say, I, I, you know, the, some of the other songs did grow on me over repeated listens, but after a first listen, this really stood out to me as the sort of most instantly memorable track on the album, both musically and lyrically. Um, so that's really interesting that that you think it's the weakest on the first side because I think it's one of the strongest. That's crazy. And I say that saying that I love the first side of the album. Oh, I'm sure. Like the yeah, first yeah, side of the rel- album, as you mentioned, could be its, its all own relative. EP. Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean. Like it, it could. I kind of wish it had been. Yeah, because you could you could do this as a part one, where basically what I love about the whole first side of this album is it's all um, in Nikki's mind. It's all positive. Like it's all him right, finding right. his identity, becoming something, something part of something bigger. Um, having a purpose in life like everything is looking up for nikki as he goes through the front half of this album right. and then the back album is when it all sort of fall, the back half is when it all sort of falls apart but so um, music this is also however musically a good example of one of the things i disliked about the album and that is that the album none of the songs ever quite feel like they break out there's it always feels like you know it's it's how can i Remember that we talked about the loudness wars mm-hmm. and how the problem with the loudness wars is that the louds get louder, the quiets get, uh, sorry, get get quieter, the quiets get louder and everything just ends up being the same yep. volume. So there's no, and that's kind of how this album is for me. And I don't mean sonically, I don't mean in terms of the actual loudness wars to say it's a very well produced album, in fact, but in terms of its feel, like it never gets really low. And it never gets really high. It just stays around this center line, never straying too far from it. And this track is a great example because there is, after the second chorus, when they go into the bridge, there is a perfect opportunity, especially with a guy with Jeff Tate's voice, to really belt out. Eradicate the fascist revolution. goes down instead of going you know, revolution will grow yeah. and going yep. it could have been a real like bang into the solo you know a real kind of roaring moment and instead it goes down it just kind of steps sideways into it and that is indicative of the whole album musically for me and it's where it's one of the reasons that i think you know they made a few missteps musically because i think it could have had a lot more power if they had let themselves go sure more often and it's interesting to think about like what would be the reasons behind that. Like I almost equate it to uh, to use a video game analogy, where like Gears of War has a certain color palette, and you're not going to step outside of that color palette for the entire game. Like the world, the characters, mm-hmm. the everything is going to be within these certain. You know, in Gears of War, it feels right, like five yeah. colors. You yeah. know, but uh, <laughs> gray, brown, but, red, <laughs> exactly the whole gray brown thing. And and so you have this band in Queensryche who over their first three albums have kind of been all over the place, right? Like they're, they, I would argue if you go back and listen to some of their previous stuff, it's the exact opposite of this. They're, the albums in some ways can feel disjointed because there right, really right. is musically no connection between one song to the other. And so in some ways I feel like they were trying to dial it in and sort of have yeah, this, maybe. 
have this sort of um, ballpark of, okay, everything kind of needs to fit within, this is the color palette for this album. This is the audio palette for this album. We have to keep things tonally within all of this. And maybe they did too much of that. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they, um, they didn't let themselves um, experiment as much. Yeah. Um, although I, I mean, think you do see that in a couple of songs here, one of which w- w- we're going to get to um, well, with I, Sweet look, Sister Mary for sure. Know, who, who am I to say? I mean, the, you know, this is an album that is clearly sold. What was it, over a million? Like if it's gone, if it's... Oh, it went platinum, yeah. Platinum, so that's a million copies, isn't it, I think? Yep. Or at least like f- half a million or something. So yeah, I mean, you know, who am I to... Oh no, here we are, platinum is, is over a million, yeah. Right. So who, who am I to... Clearly this appealed to many, many people. Sure. <laughs> you know, but yeah, for me, it was like, I would have liked it a lot more if it just felt like they had let themselves go uh, and, you know, le- unleashed that sort of control that you feel throughout the whole album uh, just once or twice. So now we go into spreading the disease. Always brings me what I need Without a big and sweat and bleed When we're alone at night Waiting for the call She beats my skin Sixteen and on the run from home Find a job in Times Square Working live S&M shows Let me take a quick break here to say I had been, because as I say, I knew this was a concept album going in. So I'm being a writer myself. I can't help but sort of try and figure out where it's going. Up until this point, I had thought and sort of expected that what was going to happen was uh, he would carry out all these murders. Then he would suddenly find himself framed. One of them would go wrong and find himself framed and arrested for it. And he ended up back in the hospital because he would find that the big revelation was that actually the government was behind it all along. And ah. it's a fal- it's a false flag operation. And Dr. X is actually working for the government and they're doing this so that the government can then react with force and clamp down on the revolution. On the revolution. So yeah. Using him as a tool to sort of like say, hey, aren't these revolutionary people really bad? And so we need to introduce martial law, um, which... Don't get me wrong, that is not an original idea. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's some, a concept that's been done in fiction many, many times. Sure. But that's kind of what I was expecting. But and, here's the thing And the that. cover art, the cover art lent itself to that. That's part of what, when I saw the cover art, I was like, oh, well, this is clearly meant to evoke a sort of 1984 Big sure. Brother sort of feel. And I don't so think that's anything what led in me this to album, idea. though, precludes that from happening. Because well. as we'll talk about as we get towards the end of it, there are a lot of now. Granted, I'm not even going to talk about Operation Mindcrime too because it's a successor right, to sure, this. But whatever. at this point in time, when you get to the end of this album, there are many unanswered questions. There the are biggest a lot of one ambiguities. Of which, yes. What the heck happened to Doctor X? You know, and and sort of uh, what's the status of of everything at this yeah, point? And so you're right. There are a lot of ambiguities, but nevertheless, there is. Basically, it was from this track onwards, it was from spreading the disease onwards that I started to think, oh, hang on, 
no, I've I've got the wrong end of the stick here. This uh-huh. is not this is not what I thought it was going to be at all. <laughs> because because there's no you're right there's ambiguities, but there's no indication whatsoever that that was the sort of line that they wanted to go down. Once you get past this trap, basically once they introduce Mary. Yep. And I think uh, it, it, and within what you're saying there, I think if 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 this um Maybe one of the things that this album is guilty of from a storytelling standpoint is that it presents a very large concept but tells a very small story. Right. And so as you mentioned, you're not seeing the killings, you're not finding you're not hearing about what the ramifications of these things happening are. You're not seeing the power balance change. You're not seeing the big effects of whatever the revolution is trying to do. Now, granted, the revolution is still in its infancy at this point, if we're to, you know, believe what's happening here, but but they are presenting this very big concept of this guy who's basically, you know, out to anoint himself the new kingpin, and um, and we're not seeing that bigger picture. We're seeing Nikki's story, and so uh, which again which is, is obviously is what they set out to do. But I think, right, as you yeah. mentioned, your expectation going in might be, especially from the beginning of it, that there is something much bigger here. Right, exactly. Um, I was expecting yeah. something a bit grander. Yeah, I mean, sure. the focus being on Nikki, of course, you've got to do something like that. Yep. You, you know, you only have a limited amount of narrative you can put into an album. Um, but I did expect to to feel that the story had a sort of wider ramifications, and it, you know, as you get towards the end, it kind of feels like it doesn't. Right now, spreading the disease. We talked about the drum opening. This is the song in which we get introduced to Mary. Yes. So Mary is this character who was uh, basically a prostitute and was taken in by Father William, who is a guy that works for Dr. X. And so they never explicitly say this, but my interpretation and, and from, from what I've read is that this is, this is a guy who initially uh, Dr. X sees as one of his people that he's putting in place as one of the political and religious elite. So as Nikki is eliminating people and now Dr. X is putting his pawns in place, this is a guy that works for Dr. X, Father William. And so he uh, basically takes Mary in and she thinks when she gets taken in by this guy that, you know, religion is going to save her. And so as she gets taken in by Father William, you know, all the horrible things that she's done and what her life has become at that point is all going to be made better because she's found the church and she, Father William cares about her and all that kind of stuff. However, Father William doesn't care about her. Father William is basically, um, has become her pimp now because he uses her as a means to keep people like Nikki satiated and in line. You know, she delivers drugs to him. She delivers sex to him. She keeps him in a state where he will continue to be a tool that they can use. And so she, much like Nikki, is just a pawn in a much larger, you know, sort of thing because people mean nothing to to these, um, you know, the, these sort of kingpin types. That she's just another, she's just another resource to be used. And so he he took her in because he could use her to do the same thing she was doing on the streets, except for their purposes. It's all very 1988, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It's, Absolutely. <laughs> it's, and and lyrically, mean, yeah, you know, I mean, 16 I, and on the run from home, found a job in Times Square working live S&M shows. Right. Times, Times Square now? Are you kidding? It's owned by Disney. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, certainly not uh, Certainly not the Times Square that we know nowadays. But uh, I mean, you know, I know complaining about gender politics in 80s metal is, you know, it really is a hiding to nothing. Sure. Uh, and this is nothing compared to, you know, some of the real 
misogynist and sexist stuff from the metal days of the late 80s but i was quite disappointed that a prog band would you know go for the cliched fallen woman becomes a prostitute no uh-huh. no she's irredeemable uh, i was I, I mean i know it's only a song but i i was a little disappointed by that and although it's not wholly inconsistent with the the situation that Nikki's in either, you know the the drug addicted, you know, t- right, late teen, with early twenties guy him, who's wandering the streets with right. no purpose and has no direction in life, you know. But with him, they brainwash him to be a killer. With her, right? They, they empower use, him they and they disempower her. Absolutely, they just use her, her, right, just use her yep. as a prostitute. It's you know, yep. there's the gender imbalance in a nutshell. And Which I think is, they and try it's a shame to because musically. If you take away the lyrics and just have the music and Jeff Tate's sa- the sound of his voice, I think this is a really great track, actually. And, 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 and they're guilty. It's brilliant. It, it is. I, it absolutely is. And the one note that I made about this is, um, you know, the, the bass line on this track. If you go back and if you dig into it and listen to it, you know, Eddie Jackson's bass line on this is incredible. It never He never stops moving mm. for this entire <laughs> song, like especially when they're singing the core the the chorus he's like like he's all over the place rising and falling and it's just really an amazing amazing uh baseline that i think drives the whole track and it's up tempo so it's one of the it's one of the harder rockers on the whole album i think it is um and it's got a chorus that you know you can instantly sing along to <laughs> right and i think and and that's where it, you know we talk about the you know the gender stuff with this one and you have a situation where I think they might have bit off more they can chew than they could chew with the character of Mary too, because they're trying to, you know, tell a love story here as well, sort of this this you know broken love story. But there's not enough time to dig into that story, and they right. don't give enough time to Mary as a character to, uh, to show you the other side. You know what I mean? And so it is. It j- just ends up kind of she's ends up being a cliche. Yeah. Well, and know? they introduce it too late. Yes, exactly. The main thing is that, like, this is track six, for heaven's sake. You know, uh, this is way too late to be introducing a character who's going to be, you know. Although they try to make up for it in one song, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But yeah, so, uh, but you're right, absolutely. So she's only present for a handful of songs in the middle of the album. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so she comes in spreading the disease, you sort of get her backstory um, and and her connection to Nikki. And then. things sort of slow down a bit as we head into the mission. which is hands down my favorite song on this album. Wow, really? Because it, to me, not even so much musically, but to me it's a very emotionally powerful song because it represents the last time that Nikki thinks that he has a place in this world. You know what I mean? Because it's, 
it's basically him talking about uh, this revolution and how and, and the chorus here is one of my favorite is probably my favorite thing on this entire album. My mission saved the world and I stood proud. My mission changed the world to turn my life around. And and as the song goes on, and especially on the, the last minute or so, you have, again, much like the song Speak, you have him speaking for other people that are a part of this movement as well. You know, he is someone who is so invested at this point in what the mission is and believes truly at this point that his what he's doing is going to change the world. And it just makes me think of like someone who's just so just so tied into this concept of what they're doing is right and what they're doing is is justified and righteous and 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 it really is the last time that he'll feel that in this story because everything changes when we flip over to side two and the rug gets pulled out from under him. But it's sort of it's sad to me because it is the last time that he feels that he has a purpose in life. Right, so, it's, the, it's the self-delusion, yeah. Of the, yes, the man he's who's so clearly, deluded, he's so bought in. Well, and, um, but not just that. I, th- I mean, the impression I got was that he, he can see the cracks, but he's desperately trying to ignore yes. them, con- convince himself yes. that what he did has made a difference, even though it clearly, you know, really hasn't. Um, but yeah, I, I actually think this is probably the weakest song on the, on the side one of the album. Like if you were talking about, you know, if you did this as an EP, um, I would kind of, I'd lose this. <laughs> so I'd, just like, I'd end it before this track. But that's, it's, I mean, uh, again, it's interesting how songs will resonate with one of us over yeah. uh, for a particular yeah. reason. And for me, it's it's the it's the vision that it conjures, you know, as I'm watching this. And it also drops a lot of uh, sort of plot elements here too, because you're, you're, um, what you're finding out through these songs as well is that sort of Mary kind of hides him away in a church, which is where he he you know obviously visits her, but also that's sort of his hideout. So he's he's sort of looking out the window and he's thinking back over the past several days and Sister Mary comes to visit him. You know, she comes to wash his sins away. She's the lady that can ease my sorrow. So he's talking about his relationship with Mary and even though um, she is being sent to him for a very particular purpose, he's falling in love with her. And so he's thinking about her, he's thinking about his mission and how he sort of got to this place, but he's also, as you said, convincing himself that yes, this is this is what this is going to change the world. This is big. I'm part of something important. I have a purpose. And uh, he talks about how there's it's a room full of candles. Each one tells a story, but they end the same. So he lights a candle for every person he's killed, and he's got a room full of candles. And so you're seeing that there's a there. This has been going on for a while now, um, and he's been killing people. Uh, I'll hide away in here. The law will never find me. The walls will tell the story of my pain. So this is this is his sanctuary, and um, and it's where he's, you know, constantly thinking about his place in this movement and what he's done. And that's how we end the first half. Right, and and yet somehow, even though he's hiding away here, he then gets has a meeting with Doctor X, and you know, or Doctor X calls him or something, and that that's a bit like really. How does that work? <laughs> sure like the, and again that's a piece of the story that you don't get right because the next thing you know so it is so side one the first half of the album ends with him sort of reflecting on where he's at and the fact that he's part of this movement that's going to change the world so so the concept of side one is i found my place we flip over to and i'm in love with mary that's sort of where we're leaving yeah. side one is i have a place i have a mission i have a purpose and i have this 
woman who I am falling in love with. You flip over to the other side, and we start with Sister Mary, and the first thing that you hear is, kill her. That's all you have to do. And he says, kill Mary? And she says, yeah, she's a risk, and get the priest as well. find out that Father William has outlived his usefulness to Dr. X, because as much as Mary doesn't mean anything to Father William, Father William doesn't mean anything to Dr. X, because he uses everyone. And so now that Father William has outlived his usefulness, he's gone too, and Nikki is sent to kill both of them. Um, and so you're hearing here, and this is a, a, a 10 minute long song that changes tempo, that changes melody, that... well. <laughs> or doesn't according to anthony not that not as much as you might think it pulls a lot of tricks because this unfortunately this track is probably my biggest single disappointment because i love long songs uh-huh. and i love long songs as part of concept albums but considering its length it doesn't even cover that much of the story and it just i mean i know it's an important part of the story but is it yeah just you know does doesn't very little for me, but I was I then went back and listened to it sort of musically and thinking, okay, but does it at least have lots of different musical movements? And it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It has one like thirty second diversion for the bridge where it, it changes key uh, and tempo. And other than that, it's all in the same key. The only difference is whether they're playing clean guitar or distorted guitar, but they're playing the same thing, you know. So the it actually doesn't change and say they, they pull a few tricks and it doesn't actually change as much as they perhaps want you to think <laughs> well i will say that their tricks worked on me because i i felt like they did switch it up on this track and and this is their whether they tell a lot of story or not they're trying to tell a lot of story here in this one because this is where they're sort of cramming in um the entirety of the relationship between you know, Nikki right, and, and Mary. Nikki and Mary, yeah, yeah. And and so basically what they're trying to do with this song is he kills the priest. He goes and kills the priest, and then he comes to Mary and he is explaining to her, They've sent me to kill you. And the only way that we're gonna survive is if we stick together, we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna I'm gonna go he he makes a decision that he's going to go and tell Dr. X that that they're done. And then he's gonna come back and get Mary and then they're gonna leave. And so what is lost completely in the, you know, subtext of this whole thing, and, and I will put a link in the show notes to an interview with Chris DeGarmo, who was the guitar player. He was interviewed and did like a track-by-track commentary on this album. 
So he right. explains bits and pieces of the actual storyline um, and what he says about, <clears throat> excuse me, about Sister Mary. Um, X is telling Nikki to kill Mary, and he doesn't want to, but X figures out Mary is becoming dangerous. Nikki and Mary try to escape, and this track was very exciting, blah, blah, blah. Um, but basically, what is happening here is as the two of them are having sex, which happens during the guitar solo of this song, um, and you hear a lot of sort of moaning and, and uh, noise making during the the solo here, is that she is having flashbacks to Father William. So even though she has feelings for Nikki as well, because of what Father William has put her through, she sort of sees Nikki as Father William when they're together. And so she's she's just he you know, he's making love to the woman that he loves. She is reliving trauma. She's having traumatic yeah, flashbacks. She's yeah. she's reliving trauma as they're having sex. And so he Nikki realizes this and and sort of storms out of there to basically go to Dr. X and tell him that they're out because he's now you know, he's thinking like look at look at what you've done to the woman that I love. This isn't the movement that I thought it was. This isn't the great thing that I thought it was. So between Dr. X telling him to kill her and him seeing the effects that being a part of this movement has had on Mary, he is like, we're out. We're going to, I'm going to go tell him we're out. And then you and I are going to get out of here and we'll go away somewhere together. But where he leaves Mary is in a place where she is just reliving this past trauma and well, we'll talk about what the outcome of that is in right, a few yeah, minutes. But yeah. but it's basically like my favorite part of this song is when when it does change up and he's talking about Mary, sweet lady of pain, always alone, blind, you search for the truth. I see myself in you, parallel lives. So to Nikki, the, they're the same. You know, they're both these young kids who got sucked into this thing, and and now they're realizing that it's not what they thought it was, and so. They're kindred spirits, and and if they can escape this thing together, they can go start a life somewhere else. Is is essentially what yeah yeah what Nikki comes to realize during this. But there's a lot of sort of Mary um, having that trauma come back to her, and and her talking about how, um, as you mentioned before, she's sort of irredeemable, and and she when he leaves, she's in a place where she's just uh, she's in a very dark place when he leaves to go talk to Doctor X. Yeah, well, and as you say, they do try to pack basically their entire relationship into one song. Yes, you know? yes. yeah, and, <laughs> which and is unfortunate. It well, and it's a ten-minute-long song, so you know there are elements of it that are interesting. And and um, I know for my buddy John that I mentioned earlier, like this is his favorite song on the album. And I actually know a lot of people who I've talked to about this album who will point to this song as just wow. this amazing opus. Um, for me, it's not that. I like this song and I certainly think it's a good song and, and it's they're trying to pack a lot of story in there, but it's not it's certainly not my favorite song in the album by any stretch. Yeah, it it's I mean, despite its length, like almost none of it uh like I'm I'm actually looking at the lyrics as we speak right now and I I couldn't sing any of it to you. I couldn't actually remember the tune of a single word of this. Well, I think uh, the one part I will always remember the tune of is that part where he's talking about Mary, my lady of pain, always alone. That's where everything changes, like dun, 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 a couple times towards the back end of the song. You know what I mean? 
I, I know the I know the bit you mean because I'm looking at the lyrics for it, but I don't remember the tune <laughs> right. at all. So the other thing to to make note of here is this is where you get your introduction to Pamela Moore, who is singing the part of Mary on this album. Right, and, which I didn't realize at first. Actually, I thought that that was uh, Jeff Tate just yes. like sort of adopting yep. a slightly higher voice. <laughs> I think a lot of people made that mistake when they first listened to it as well because they're not immediately discernible. But obviously, on multiple listens, you start to hear that, right, that she. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, what's cool about um, about Pamela Moore is that she's come out on tour with them and played this part, and also has you know sang backup and stuff like that too. But it's kind of cool that um, that she shows up here, and it. it even though her character is cliched and it's not, you know, they don't give her as much uh, time and attention as a character as they should, it's cool that they had someone play her character because right, it does yeah, add yeah. a level of depth that really wouldn't be there otherwise, for That's sure. True. That is true, yeah. yeah. Um, so now we go into The Needle Lies, which is another very up-tempo song. This is where Nikki goes and says to Dr. X, I've had enough and I want out. And Dr. X says, you can't walk away now and laughs maniacally. And then we go into, you know, a very sort of up-tempo drum intro. And then they kick into the song of essentially Nikki in in a disillusion and drug-induced sort of haze, wandering the streets and, and trying to... Um, break free of the grip of the drugs and of Doctor X, and so it's all about it, don't do drugs. Is the is the yeah. you know the main the main thing? I'm getting that. Yeah. This. Uh, what, what what I liked about it is there's some cool lyrics like I I crawled down alleys to try and scrape away the tracks that marked me. You know, slam my face into walls of concrete. I stared amazed at the words written on the wall. And again, some of that stuff is very on the nose. Don't ever trust the needle; it lies. Well, but, I was going to say that there is a marked dif- difference actually in the lyrics between the verse. And the chorus, like you're right, that, that some of the verse lyrics are actually quite good and evocative, and you know, a bit a bit poetic and ambiguous in places. And then you get a chorus: "Don't ever trust the needle; it lies." I mean, you know, you may as well have PSA stamped on the bottom of it. Sure. Or something. <laughs> uh, you know, wet and raving, the needle keeps calling me back to bloody my hands forever. Every time I'm weak, words scream from my arm because he carved into he carved the chorus basically into his arm. Right, yeah. So every time he looks, every time he thinks about doing drugs, he will look at his arm and it will say, don't ever trust the needle. So yeah, very on the nose. Um, but he's, you know, he's confused. He sort of runs out of there and his uh, goal is to get back to Mary. Even though Dr. X has told him he can't escape, he's, I'm out of here. And he goes and and he just needs to get back to Mary, which brings us into Electric Requiem, which is him finding Mary dead.
very short track, very uh, and actually musically, you know, quite interesting because it is a real departure from the rest of the album. It's heartbreak, very, very you synth know? heavy, slow, exactly. low key. Yeah. You know, it's horror and heartbreak as he finds Mary. He says, "Even in death, you still look sad," which is sad. You know, like that's yeah. <laughs> that that is uh, that. So I I like this, even though it is you know very short. Again, I think it's. Um, Let's see, Electric Requiem, a minute and 22 seconds. So Right, it, yeah, it is very uh, short. Because, I, I mean, believe... it really is, it's just a bridge, basically, between The Needle Lies and Breaking the Silence, isn't it? Because right. I think both tracks run into the start and end Correct. of Electric Requiem. Yeah. And so Scott Rockenfield was the one that composed this. Now, what's interesting about Scott Rockenfield, who's the drummer of Queensryche, is he has uh, made a name for himself outside of that band as a composer. And he has done work for video games. He actually recorded the drum tracks for Black Ops Call of Duty. Oh, wow. Uh, he's done video game work. He has had Grammy nominations for his composing. He does a lot with uh, sound effects and um, effects for movies. He's scored trailers for different movies and stuff like that. So he has done a lot of stuff. He's probably the most active one outside of Queensryche and is known for his uh, for being a composer. So I just thought that was interesting. So he yeah. was the one that composed this. Obviously, Jeff Tate wrote the lyrics for this particular part. Um, because I think a lot of times when you hear people talk about Queensryche, you hear them talk about um, the departure of Chris DeGarmo as sort of the beginning of the end of Queensryche. And so there's this sort of narrative in fans' head, heads that Chris DeGarmo was the you know major songwriter and was the one who was responsible for their heavier sound and more, um, you know, more Queens Reiki sound until he left and then things really started to get, you know, washed away. But that's actually not true when you look at who, um, at least for this album, because you right, have, right. uh, you know, everybody contributing on this album and, and this is a good track to, uh, to sort of see that. But again, he finds, uh, Mary dead and you don't know because of the fact that we just listened to the needle lies. You're left to wonder, did Nikki kill her? And he, didn't remember it. Did Dr. X come in and kill her? Did uh, Mary kill herself? Um, and so you're sort of, at the time when I listened to this, it was all very ambiguous of like, well, who, who is responsible for Mary's death at this point? Um, the answer to that question is that, that she kills herself. That was answered, um, I believe, in some of the footage that you see oh, live really? because during that's concert not, and stuff like that. Because that's not made clear at all anywhere no. else on the album. Like not, not just here, but even later, it's not clear at right. all anywhere. And, and it, I think at the time it was left to be ambiguous, but in their live stage shows, I believe that they show that she hung herself with her she, – she basically asphyxiated herself with her rosary. Right. And, and so she killed herself. And – the reason behind that being, um, and this is where Chris DeGarmo is talking in the interview, he says, um, Father William lay crumpled on the stairs in the sanctuary. Mary watches in disgust as her lover, Nikki's troubled face, dissolves into the leering, drooling face of the priest. So this is where DeGarmo was kind of explaining, like, this is what she sees when her and Nikki are together. Um, and so they're basically kind of painting the picture that she was just, at that point, so distraught that she ends up killing herself. But Nikki goes back and then finds her dead, and that's when we go into the next song, which is what breaking the silence, right? They told me to run back just how far can I go wearing the black mask of fear? I hate my 
So Breaking the Silence is where he is running through the streets and he is just like a raving lunatic because he's wa- he's running through the streets. He's calling Mary's name. Mary's gone. His whole world has completely imploded at this point. He you know, was planning on the two of them escaping together and now she's dead. And so he's just sort of lost it. This is this is the sort of snapping of Nikki to the point where there is no return from him. And musically, and this isn't just because of the title, doesn't this sound like a bit like a Judas Priest track? <laughs> you know what? Now that you mention it, yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, but that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. I, I actually, I thought of that first and then I looked at the title and I'm like, oh, hang on, wait, am I just like, because it's, you know, breaking the law and all that. But then I, I listened to it again and I'm like, no, it really does sound like a Judas Priest track from the 80s. And it sounds so 80s. This is the most 80s track on the album musically. There's just, sure. Couldn't you imagine this in the soundtrack to like any one of dozens of movies from the 80s? Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Breaking the silence of the night through the streets, I'm screaming, looking for you in the neon light. Again, yeah, very dated yeah. reference. Uh, why well, don't you sure. answer me? So he's hearing her voice everywhere. He's seeing her everywhere. He's just completely distraught over the fact that, and the, I think the one lyric that's in is, there's no end to our story. You know, that yeah. he didn't get yeah. to, there's no closure for them because now she's dead. And and this song, you mentioned before how things kind of, in some spots in this album, tend to sound the same or are right in you know in the same wheelhouse. I feel like breaking the silence and I don't believe in love. Songs eleven and twelve are guilty of that. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. Yeah, all that I don't believe in love is is a continuation of the same sentiment that you hear in breaking the silence. Right. Breaking and the even, silence. Even musically, it's pretty similar. You know. Both of these are sort of like, um, you know, more more up tempo, more more, you know, trying more to be rocky heavier tracks. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Heavy, heavier rocky tracks. But so it's not necessarily that mid album lull that we talk about in so many albums. It's just uh, a, a sort of a mid album. Um, but it sameness. is sameness. You know it what I mean? It is. It's exactly that. This is exactly what I wrote down. Was this is one of our classic halfway through side two you could lose it and nobody would care well in that sense yes but it's different in that a lot of times those those songs are sort of the the down tempo ones you know what i mean like the like like where there's actually a lull almost emotionally and and in you know musically there whereas this one they're trying to keep the momentum going but it's just very samey yeah you know what i mean And, and and again lyrically this track is just very uninteresting it doesn't say anything really you certainly it doesn't say anything that we didn't as you say already hear right. in what? in 
breaking the silence. All that it's you really just... know, all that it does to move the story forward is that Nikki is found wandering the streets and he's found with a gun on him and he's now being looked at for all of these murders that have happened. So he's he is the person who is now likely going to get blamed for killing Mary, right. even though, um, you know, at this point, we don't know if he actually did that or not. Right. Well, and here's another sort of thing that's missing, talking about the ambiguity. Like, he's supposed to have had you know, we discover, or we know by now, that he's supposed to have had some kind of mental break and memory loss. We never actually see that. And this would have been a perfect time for us to see that, as it were, you know, for, to actually make reference to it lyrically. And it's just nowhere. It's not even sort of, oh, maybe this could be a reference to it. There's no reference yeah. to it whatsoever. I, and I think also that, like, that they they're misleading when they talk about kind of a memory loss, because I think what they're trying to do is paint the picture more of like, it's not even so much a memory loss, but the fact that he's so drugged out and brainwashed that he doesn't know what's real and what's not. So it's not even that he can't remember mm, stuff. Maybe. It's more that he can't tell. Did I kill Mary or did someone else kill Mary or are these voices here or are they not here? Or like, so it's more of like his just frayed sanity that is fueled by this, the, the drugs that he doesn't even know who he is or what he's doing. And so right. someone well, could come which, to him and say, you killed Mary, and he wouldn't be able to argue with them because he can't he can't discern. Like, they could paint a picture for him that he would believe, right, um, which sure. is how he got in this problem in the first place with Dr. X. But you then, I mean? But then it starts with him saying, I remember now. And then you get to this point where it's like, well, okay, clearly you don't. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and talk about an unreliable narrator, right? So, yeah. and again, so, so yeah, he, it, it's certainly a situation where he's, he's now been found. He is, uh, he is lamenting the fact that he was a fool for ever believing in the concept of love because his life has just turned to absolute shit now. Um, he's lost the woman that he loves. Who knows if that was even love to begin with? Um, you know, did she lie to me? How much did she actually love me? Like all of those are questions that are that are sort of kicking around here. Um, you know, I'll just pretend she never was real. Um, it's never worth the pain that you feel. So again, very eighties lyrics. You know, for um, for this song, but the sentiment is that he's now he's now just completely lost it, and it's just in the depths of the depths of the depths. Yeah. Uh, well, and. And and this is the thing, and then we have a, an instrumental. We have "Waiting for 22, which is another short, very short instrumental. And again, and then another big leap. This is what I mean about the bits that are missing. Like on side one, they are really specific and on the nose about lots of story stuff. And then in side two, suddenly, where it would really help if they were on the nose, they aren't. Right. <laughs> They're completely ambiguous. And they miss out massive chunks of like, well, hang on. How did you get from here to here? Right. Like, because, it, because you know, them finding him on the streets and stuff like that. Like, there's a lot of pieces that, that are not explicitly spoken to yeah. in the lyrics. And, and it's well, funny, because Chris DeGarmo, who, who uh, composed this little one-minute Waiting for 22 interlude, said, this is just a, a little moody guitar piece that lasts about a minute, which I wrote and all the guys and the producer liked. So... There, right. <laughs> it, it was something that they that kind of sounded cool at the time, so they put it in. And and what I struggle with with this one is that um, 
13 and 14 back to back, you should lose one of those. Like if I was if I was producing this album, Empty Room and Waiting for 22 are you don't need both of those. You only need one of those. So it, it's two and a half minutes of sort of musical interlude that you could only if you could cut that in half. Yeah, and also the title. Am, am I missing a cultural reference here? Because no, I don't and understand I'm glad what you asked that because uh, no one knew what that meant. And so there was a interview, which I don't know if I still have. Oh, okay, there was an interview done years ago where someone said to Jeff Tate. I have a question that I've wondered for several years. Uh, Anarchy Music did this interview. Can you explain to me the meaning of the title of the song Waiting for 22? And Jeff Tate said, uh, originally it was a musical piece, an interlude. It was meant to be a sort of lament, sort of a bittersweet piece of music to set the tone for that particular part of the record. I envision Nikki going through this really rough uh, year because we. this is the place where we find out he's 21. Oh. And he's pretty much hoping that the next year is going to be better. So he's he's waiting for 22, hoping that he'll have sort of a clean slate right, when he gets right. through this horrible year that was his 21st year. And so that's what it's from. And the guy who was interviewing him says, oh, I thought it had something to do with the 10 o'clock, which is mentioned in Sweet Sister Mary, because that would be 22 hours military time. Yep, 2200, yeah. So, uh, and Jeff says, well, that's one of the reasons we chose that title as well. So, you know, it sounds like he's like, oh yeah, no, that's a good idea. (laughs) It's totally that too. But waiting for 22, at least as it was originally intended, is sort of Nikki saying, God, I can't wait for this year to be over. It's been a rough year for the old Nickster. Yeah, see, again, if there was any reference anywhere else in the on the album to him being 21, then, right. you know, maybe, maybe I'd have got that, but. And, uh. and the closest you get is, you know, uh, something, something when you couldn't go to school. So he didn't go to college, you know, that that's the closest you get to a reference of what his age is at the time. Because when sure, I originally but, listened to it, I'm thinking yeah. this is a dude in his thirties. He's been doing this for a long time, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, but really the song itself in my empty room is just him thinking of the night that Mary died. Um, and then also wondering like who will be there for him now. And here I sit Chalk out line upon the wall I remember tracing it A thousand times Oh, the night she died Why? because this was the only person in the world that he had any real connection to, and she's gone. He is truly, truly alone as he sits in his hospital room and is now going down for these crimes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, it's just that big leap, so many bits missing. Um, and like, if this was, if this was still a work in progress, I'd say, uh, well, clearly it's because, you know, you sort of haven't figured out the second half yet. So you're sure. kind of fudging things and you don't really know what you want to do and you need to figure that out and then rewrite it. But but no, this is the final version. So clearly not. Well, um, and we all know, uh, at least from a writer's perspective, endings are difficult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they certainly no, no struggle question. with the ending yes, here are. because yeah. there's a lot of uh, unanswered questions and a lot of sort of, um, it sort of screeches to a halt. But it, but it, in any case, so he's lamenting that, and then the last song, Eyes of a Stranger, which was the first single off of this album. Every night the dreams return to haunt me Your rosary wrapped around your throat I lie awake and sweat the fade to fall asleep 
basically him laying there in his bed, thinking about these fragments of memories that he has of what has happened um, with Mary, with all the killings that he's been a part of, with him getting involved with the revolution. And it's really a a recap of the entire album to this point. Um, And literally, as they get towards the end of the song, and there are snippets of the different songs and the different interludes and the different skits that are all playing in the background as this song sort of comes to a close... It is, it's sort of a recap of everything now, and him just, again, sort of lamenting the fact that, is this all that's left of my life before me? Straightjacket memories and sedative highs. You know, no happy ending like they've always promised. There's got to be something left for me. So, he, really, he's, he's sitting in bed. He's sort of in this hospital. You're assuming going to be awaiting uh, trial, probably under arrest already, and, you know, is going to have to be the fall guy for everything that's happened. And as opposed to Dr. X, because Dr. X is is not even mentioned here in terms of what's going to happen to him, but Nikki is the guy who goes down for all of this, and he's sitting in his bed sort of um, thinking about basically what a pile of shit his life has become at this point, and how there's really nothing left for him. And now when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't even recognize who he is. He's there, There's been so many you know, lies put through his mind and so many you know different things that he's done that he's he's a stranger to himself. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have lyrical problems with this, <laughs> with this track. I, the eyes of a stranger thing. Sure. Yeah. Fine. Um, but again, like if he had a memory break or if he's supposed to be doped up so that he can't remember anything, uh-huh. then how is, why is he talking about how he remembers what we had and what we knew with Mary and remembering the vision of her dead face? It's like, you can't have both of those things. Right. Like he remembers that, but he doesn't know how she died. Like, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. It doesn't remember anything. And I just want to kind of drag him back in the studio and go new draft, sort these fucking holes out. Right. Well, (laughs) that's the writer writer that wants to drag (laughs) him in there and say, okay, you've got these gaping plot holes here (laughs) and you're going to need to fix these before we can put this out. You can't have both of these things, you know? And I, and to be honest with you, I think that is why they, I think that's why Jeff Tate, who is the primary lyricist, you know, on this album in terms of writing lyrics. I think that's why he wanted to do a sequel because, and again, as you know, that's a bad idea to do a sequel right, when, yeah, yeah. when you're trying to answer questions that the first story yeah, just, asked. Just like, leave it. Just leave exactly, it. Exactly. Like, yeah, leave it. For and, all of its flaws, I yeah. mean, this album sold millions <laughs> of copies and it's critically acclaimed. Like, you don't need to, we, it's okay for us to be frustrated with some of the lyrics. It's okay with us to have questions when you go back and try to tinker with that and fill in the gaps, I'm thinking of, um, I was a big fan of the Dragonlance Chronicles when I grew up. Oh, yeah. And that to me was something that uh, I absolutely loved because I was a D&D kid. But that original Chronicles trilogy, years later, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman came back and wrote, I think it was called The Lost Chronicles, but they wrote a book. They wrote three books that fit in between the three books that they already wrote. Oh, and that's always, and it wasn't terrible, but it's just like, they never should have done it. It wasn't, 
it wasn't necessary and it uh, is it's a bad reason to try and go back and tinker with something that really once you're done with it it's going to have its flaws everything we've ever written when you of go course. back and look at it is you know are there things you would have done different yes are there decisions that you maybe regret yes but it's like i said last week about paradise lost you know it was the best we could do at yes. the time you and know? let it and be that's that, and let it be yeah that's fine be proud of that don't yeah, just oh no! <laughs> right. Stop going back and trying to tinker with things. Like exactly. That. And so, uh, but what but I, I do, will say musically, this track is a really good closer. That's agree. something else that we've totally talked about a lot agree. on previous shows, like the importance of the closing track and how it needs to bring things to a suitable end, one way or the other. Yep. And I do think this one actually pulls it off. It feels like a climax. It feels like a closer. It does the most important thing which it makes you want to turn it back to track one and listen again. And that, well, that look, for me... Let's look at that far. <laughs> well, I mean, for, but for me, like, that's the... <laughs> no, when it hits know. about the five-minute mark is when you have uh, what lies behind the stair, and then you, you have basically... The, it's just music from then on out with clips of earlier parts of the album right, and stuff right, like yeah, that. And yeah. so you, you, the vision in your head as this song closes out is one of him going back in these fragmented pieces of the story being told once again right. and then it everything ends. rushing back into his memory exactly yeah. and then yeah. and then at the end he says i remember now which brings you right back to the first part of the album yeah so so it's and because there's so many unanswered questions which is what what i why i think whether it was intentional or unintentional the fact that there are so many questions that are not answered and there are so many pieces of the story that are not spoken to it kind of makes you question whether or not you missed some of that stuff so it does sort of make you want to go back to the beginning and be like okay did they mention that somewhere that i missed that like did they did they actually say who killed mary and i just missed that so you're by leaving all of these holes they're sort of creating the situation where you're like well is it me did i miss some of this stuff okay i'm going to go back and listen to it again maybe somewhere in a lyric or or in one of these you know interludes is some sort of uh clue to that piece that i haven't figured out in my head yet and so it i i i think that you're absolutely right that there are some pretty big holes in this story but in some ways the fact that there are so many open-ended pieces of it i think lends to further listening right um, in, in, you know, going back and trying to figure out, is this what they meant here? Or is this why they did this? And, and clearly it's an album as I, we just talked about with the interview with Chris DeGarmo, where it left people with a lot of questions and questions that they were interested enough to want answers to. So it's, it's, you know, clearly resonated with fans of this group, but also introduced a lot of people to Queensryche at the time as it did for me. Um, oh, sure. I mean, you know, like I've said, it's, that maybe if I had come to this at the time, maybe if I had given it a listen at the time, I might be more sympathetic to it. I don't know. But then again, at the same time, you know, round about the time that this came out, I was listening to stuff like Keeper of the Seven Keys. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Iron Maiden and stuff. So I think I probably still might have been a little disappointed because one of the first notes I made on, list, on first listen to this album was feels like Halloween without the energy. Mm. <laughs> which is harsh i admit but it did many parts of it made me think like well this sounds quite a bit like halloween except just nowhere near as heavy or energetic um and, and my introduction to this thing was basically i saw 
eyes of a stranger on either Headbangers Ball or in, you know, MTV rotation at the time. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting song. And then I don't know if we heard that they were going out with Metallica or not. But in any case, it was that song that led me to say, you know what, I'm going to check that album out. And I just remember with my friend John, who we were the two metalheads at the time that listened to sort of everything together, we listened to it and we had never heard Queensryche before. And we were like, holy shit. Right. Where the hell did these guys come from? Where, how do we not know about this band? And then we immediately went out and bought Queensryche, then, Ra- then The Warning, then Rage for Order. And it, it was one of those things where a band went from being unknown to you to becoming one of your favorite bands within yeah. the span of like weeks. Because we were yeah. just like, we just were just devouring everything that had Queensryche's name on it. We were just like, holy shit, I can't even believe that we didn't know who this guy was. And I will also mention, although I'm sure I'll, I may lose some cred with some of our listeners, that we were big Striper fans at the time, too. And uh, Striper's Michael Sweet, who is the singer of that band, was the, one of those very high, multi-octave singers. And so mm-hmm. we were, that was like the only band at the time that we were like, that guy's freaking unbelievable. And then we heard Jeff Tate and we were like, holy shit, there's another guy out there like that. Like we have to totally, you know, and then of course we saw them in concert on this tour and that just solidified for us at the time, right. you know, with this album that it, it just became one of my most listened to of all time. I remember actually I had a similar thing with Michael Kiesk, uh, cause I was familiar with Bruce Dickinson yep. because certainly over here, Iron Maiden were literally like a pop charting band. Sure. And I, they, they, they sing that things like run to the Hills actually made the top 40 singles chart. Yeah. Um, and we're on, you know, primetime television. Uh, and then I heard, I'm trying to think what the first, I think the first Halloween I heard was actually Keeper part one. Uh, and then I went back and got things like walls of Jericho in the, the Kai Hansen years. Um, but yeah, when I've heard Kisk's voice for the first time, and I apologize, apologize if I'm mispronouncing it, maybe it's Kiska cause he's German, but I always say Kisk. Um, when I heard his voice for the first time, especially on that album, oh my God, it was just like, what? This this is inhuman. How yes. can anybody hold such high notes with such incredible power and, you're like, and hold them for like 20 seconds at a time? It's yeah, an it's instrument amazing. in and of itself. And, that's, and there's only a handful of, of singers that, you can put in that category. And like, you mentioned yeah. Bruce Dickinson, like obviously at the time. So, you know, we've got like Michael Sweet, we've got Bruce Dickinson, and then this guy, Jeff Tate, comes along that we hadn't really been exposed to. And we were like, holy shit. And it was the same for me for Halloween. Like when I heard I Want Out, I was like, holy right, yeah. crap, we got another one. I need well, to check and I out. Want, I Want Out is actually the track I was thinking of there because that is the one where I'm pretty sure it's I Want Out is the one where Kisk holds a note for fully like 20, yes. 25 seconds. Yep. And not just any old note, but a really high yes. belting note as well. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was a uh, when when you would see a vocalist like that, that was a stand up and take notice moment. If you were a metal fan of like, Absolutely, holy crap, yeah. we need to find out more about this guy. Yeah. So um, so let's talk about the live sets really quickly. So uh, when we saw them on that Metallica tour, I saw them at the Hartford Civic Center on March seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine, and they opened with Queen of the Reich, which set the tone for the whole show, but even though they weren't playing the whole album, they played one, two, three, four, five, six, seven songs from uh, Operation Mindcrime. Anarchy X, Revolution Calling, Operation Mindcrime, Speak, Spreading the Disease, The Needle Lies, and Eyes of a Stranger is what wow. they closed with. So almost everything except the musical bits and Sweet Sister yep. Mary. And then they, uh, 
there was two other songs they played. They played Take Hold of the Flame from The Warning and Chemical Youth from Rage for Order. So they played one song off of their first three efforts, and they played seven songs off of the uh, Operation Mindcrime album. So they had a 10-song set opening for Metallica. And what was cool is that I think there were a lot of people at that show who that was their first introduction to Queensryche. Right, And yeah. so touring with Metallica will certainly give you some exposure. i got to say, Queensryche and Metallica, that's a strange bill. <laughs> if, I'll tell you what, man. As my buddy John Especially will tell you, if it was you said it was Justice Era Metallica as well. It was in the Injustice for All tour. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Because I had a bootleg t shirt that I bought outside of the arena for like ten dollars and it was like fluorescent <laughs> pink Metallica logo. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. I used to love bootleg t shirts. I still do. I bought one when I went to the Mayhem Festival uh, a little while ago. I always like to see what what they come up with. Sometimes it's better than the actual concert t shirt. So uh, um but yeah so so we saw them in 1989 and then i can't remember if i saw them in between them or not but i saw them again in 2005 so you know 16 years later wow. i saw them and it was called an evening with queensrike and they played a handful of songs from all of their different albums including empire um they played silent lucidity in concert they played a lot of different stuff and then they would take a break and they came back and played from beginning to end the entire album of, of operation yeah. Mindcrime with pamela moore there playing sister mary being sister mary singing sister mary's parts and stuff like that and it was uh, sort of a theatrical sort of performance it was in a small venue so it wasn't like the arena you know style stuff but it was definitely super memorable and i remember the the great thing about that is i remember going with my buddy and my buddy john and we were skeptical because it was 2005 now it was 16 years later that jeff tate was going to be able to hit those notes you know, that's always when you, whatever you see. I was wondering about that, yeah. Let me tell you, he, he brought that, he put that to rest immediately. I'm trying to think <laughs> of what they opened. Uh, but he nailed it. He nailed every single note. They sounded phenomenal. The band sounded amazing. He sounded amazing. And it was one of those moments where we were like, holy crap, this guy still has it after all of these years. And so, you know, it is a shame that that whole band started to fall apart at the end. But I, I think... I think it ended up being for the best musically for for everybody involved, and also they had this era where the, nobody can take that away from them. You right, know, they yeah, sold twenty yeah, million yeah. albums for crying out loud. So they they achieved a certain level of success in Queensrÿche that a lot of bands that don't don't ever see. Um, and and they have some amazing stuff to be proud of looking back. But yeah, Operation Mindcrime for me one of my easily top 20, maybe top 10 albums of all time. Um, simply wow. because, you know, I forget Just how many times. Just got you at the right time, yeah. It, did, it absolutely did. And it's one of those albums that I have listened to so many times. I could sing for you the guitar solos. I know every single <laughs> That's like note. me with Keeper of the Seven Keys. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I often do when I'm in the car, yeah, you know. Yeah. I can play them. I'm not a guitar player, but I can play them on air guitar, and you would think right. I was a guitar player. Like, I know every <laughs> inflection, every note every lyric like it's all it's just one of those albums where you can just close your eyes and basically sing along with the entire thing and it definitely is for me uh well like i say i mean i'm not gonna knock that because yeah like i say for me that was something like keeper of the seven keys which i know objectively is not you know a fantastic album um but it's so locked into that period of my life and i listened to it so much when i was younger that it's you know it is a combination of it's still a good album, but it is also a large, hefty dose of nostalgia, you know. 
And that will be true with so many albums that we talk about on the show that, you know, going back and looking at them now is kind of almost even an unfair comparison because everything we talk about of the old stuff is going to be a snapshot in time. Right. You know, right. and. Um, but, but hold that thought because along those lines, okay, next week, uh, we have covered a lot of classic albums uh-huh. so far. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that because, you know, metal never dies and all that's that. That's true. But I do not want listeners to think that we are just a couple of old fogies who only uh, listen to music from 20 years ago. So <laughs> so uh, my pick for next week is what I think is the most exciting new metal band to emerge in the last few years. And that is a British band called The Defiled. And we are going to, uh, I had to really go back and forth because they've only released two albums okay. and they are, neither of them is perfect and they both have great tracks. Um, but I decided to go for the most recent album. It's only a couple of years, like 18 months old, uh, called Daggers from 2013. I uh, cannot wait is, because I have no frame of reference for this band at all. Right. They are a modern metal, you know, sort of post metal as they call it now, uh, band from London. And I'm going to be really, really fascinated to hear what you think of them because they really divide opinion. They and bands of their ilk, the sort of scene that they're in, really divides opinion amongst a lot of older metal fans. There are an awful lot of people our age, basically, who, you know, think of stuff like Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer as, you know, that's proper metal. Um, And even Pantera, you know, sort of 80s, 90s kind of metal as classic era who cannot stand this band and the bands like them. <laughs> well, you just described my um, friend John to a T and he'll be the first one to tell you that he, right. <laughs> uh, he is that guy who I'll like, I'll go to him and be like, Hey, have you heard this new band? And he's like, no, they're shit. Like right, I, yeah. we have our bands that we listen to. Like he, he, and, and now I spend, I would say 80% of my time listening to, to the bands that I grew up with, but there is also a part of me that loves to discover new stuff. So I am psyched here, exactly. to dig into that. Exactly. Um, you know, like so, when I said, when I went to the Mayhem Festival, it was it was cool to see bands like The Devil Wears Prada or even Hell Yeah, who right. I don't have really any frame of reference for and are like, oh, well, they put on a good live show. I'll have to check out their, you exactly. know, their exactly. stuff. So. Well, and in the case of The Defiled, it, this links back to what we were talking about earlier. It was hearing a single. It was hearing what, well, seeing one song on Scuzz, um, which is a, a metal TV digital only uh, station we have over here uh some years ago played um the video for a single which actually isn't on the album we're going to talk about but i'm going to cheat and i'm going to send you because there are on the first album there are a couple of tracks that are absolute belters so i'm going to send you youtube links to the videos for those two tracks because i want you to hear those as well but it was that particular track just grabbed me instantly i was like whoa this is the best new metal I've heard in a long time. I need to find out more about this band. And now I'm a big fan. I think they're absolutely awesome. So I'm psyched. I can't wait to check them out. All right. um, Let's do it. See you next week. All righty. Take care. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry thrash it out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you, and good night.